Christopher Nolan's epic Oppenheimer just hit theaters this past weekend. It's receiving massive critical and audience acclaim. Is it his best film? Let's break down this potential masterpiece. Hello, movie friends, and welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. And today, we are breaking down what we think is the greatest film of the year so far and an absolute juggernaut of storytelling, artistry, and history in Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's seminal film. I think at this moment, it's the best film I've seen since Parasite in 2019. And on a third watch, I believe I might say it's one of the best films of the century so far. I was absolutely floored by this the first time I saw it. It's beautiful, it's stunning, it's powerful, it's immense, it's terrifying, um, and it's very timely and has so many things to say about humanity. So it has a lot of very resonant themes. And in terms of the filmmaking and the writing, it could be the best that Christopher Nolan's ever done. I've only seen it twice, but I mean, I'm kind of on that page right now where we obviously don't love recency bias, but this is a special film. And when you go through Nolan's filmography, obviously it's stacked with so many great films that people adore. And he's got several movies in the IMDb user top 100 and He's never made a bad movie before. And then when you leave Oppenheimer, if you saw it this weekend or you're seeing it this week, the feeling I got when I left Oppenheimer both times, I've seldom had that experience leaving a cinema, which is one of my favorite moments in my lives, is leaving a movie theater and having this kind of life-changing, eye-opening experience because this movie is so important on so many different aspects, whether it's from a creative standpoint with filmmaking or historical context landmark for people to understand things that happened during World War II, which we just kind of chalk up to a couple of footnotes in history these days and don't really understand the historical ramifications of things and why they happened, why the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki happened, what happened in World War II. So adding important context to the zeitgeist of World War II, which I think Dunkirk did the same thing for non-UK uh, citizens around the world who maybe didn't understand how important that event was, and that's why I think Dun uh, Nolan was so drawn to that story of Dunkirk. But Oppenheimer... This story about American physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his role in the development of the atomic bomb as director of the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos for the United States in the 1940s is remarkable. And the film follows three main sequences of Oppenheimer's life. Oppenheimer's love of Oppenheimer's love of physics into landing the role as director of the Manhattan Project from his youth going to there, as well as the building of the atomic bomb and the Trinity test in Los Alamos. Then also we have the closed United States Atomic Energy Commission hearing of Oppenheimer, as well as Louis Strauss' cabinet appointment Senate hearing, woven across several different timelines in a nonlinear story structure, effectively written so well for, for the screen by Nolan, as well as Oppenheimer's romance with Kitty and his relationship with Florence Pugh's character Gene Tatlock. Those are the main kind of storylines. As of this well as film. the relationships with the other scientists who eventually either took his side in the in the later sequences or went against him. Yeah, yeah, of course. But that's yeah. all part of it, you know, at, mm. at the Manhattan Project. But from the perspective of Oppenheimer, that's basically the, st the way that Nolan tells this story. IMDb, it's right now a 9.0. Obviously, like most new movies, that'll come down a little bit. But maybe I think it'll definitely stay around 8.2, 8.3 in the next couple months for sure. For IMDb, I expect it to be high eights yeah, by the I, end I when think it's all said and done. I think it'll remain in the top 100 after, after, after the end of the year. Rotten Tomatoes, it's 94% critic. I want to talk to those other 6%. <laughs> 
Uh, what the fuck? 94% audience score. Budget of $100 million. Pretty low for Nolan. Well, he came out and he actually specified it was closer to 180. Although okay. the, the initial report said $100 million, But he recently stated in an interview it was about $180 million. All right. He said specifically it was a 180-page script, and so it was a $180 million budget. Nice. But still... That's le- that's more than a hundred million less than ten. It's total budget, production, marketing costs. His last several films, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then the box office. We're filming this on Friday, July twenty twenty first. So we had just seen it a week before at an early screening, as well as last night on Thursday night, the technical opening preview of the film Oppenheimer, and it pulled in $10 million at the preview, which is double what Dunkirk did in its opening preview. Obviously, it's going against Barbie, so we have Barbenheimer this weekend, so it's projected to gross about $50 million domestic this weekend opening, plus maybe an extra $75 to $100 million uh, extra added on internationally, so potentially $150 million opening weekend for Oppenheimer globally, which is excellent. For this film. For a rated R World War II drama, three-hour-long thriller biopic about the man who made the atomic bomb who would have thought as well as with a runtime of three hours it doesn't feel like it i fly it flies by absolutely it's so well paced and if you're watching online on either spotify or youtube we are currently wearing outfits costumes Some fresh really duds. yeah i got uh i'm using uh my indie hat for my oppenheimer hat don't tell anyone it's an indie hat just say it's your oppenheimer hat <laughs> it's no my one's gonna no know <laughs> but we got these uh vintage suits from amazon prime and... well i got a vintage suit and it was too big so i had to kind of <laughs> scrap together some clothes i had in my closet you got a nice old vest though good thing i have this vest it's, you had... look like a physicist i do look like a physicist i don't i look like a gangster in you the do <laughs> <laughs> you need a little tommy gun <laughs> yeah you look like a physicist i look like a thug 100 uh, <laughs> <100%. laughs> percent. you do look like a thug <laughs> you look like a gangster. <laughs> hey, man, yeah, up and up. Yeah, man, yeah, yeah. She, yeah, she here, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I found so so fascinating about the story is we've seen so many movies about the, the horrible force of weaponry, whether it be fantastical like superhero films or science fiction films with some kind of huge force or, you know, war movies. Um, but we never, I, I can't remember seeing anything that showcased the development of this kind of technology and, and the use of science to create this power because this power, it's horrible and it's dominating and it's godlike, but it was created just from mathematics and from very few highly intelligent minds working together like in a context like this to craft a weapon of mass destruction and a, a, a genocidal weapon, but it all stems from mathematics and physics and there's a great line where Izzy played by David Crumholtz in this film says he doesn't want the last 300 years of the advancement of physics to be used for mass destruction and Oppenheimer uh, contrasts that by argue, arguing that if we don't have if we don't do this first the Nazis will get there or even the Russians and that could mean the end of western civilization as we know it and that set up the uh, the conflict and the motivation behind creating something like this but We've seen destruction on massive scale so many times in movies now, but to see how it's how it was done, how just coming from a chalkboard or a note, a scribbled note, and and the, on the back of a piece of paper, to ending on such a magna- magnificently magnificently destructive force of science, I found the exploration of that to be one of my favorite aspects of the film. And something that I hadn't seen on film on, on in a movie before, and I found that to be really the I think the mo- main motivation for for Nolan to make this film because 
this is a weapon made by humans and human history has been defined by war war weapons the every advancement of war is brought about by advanced civilizations whether it be you know very crude instruments of war to the more sophisticated weaponry developed by um, ancient civilizations to now we have bombs that uh, right now to this day we have bombs that are thousands of times the destructive force of the trinity test bombs so um, i think the importance of that theme of humanity is defined by its weaponry in a way and the desire to protect oneself like the two scorpions metaphor that they use um, you want to kill your enemy but it could mean the end of your own life and i think that's a very heavy theme laced throughout the film. Well, don't forget, you can only go so far in theory alone, Anthony. Yeah. Much of it is not just mathematics and physics, but theory, yes. theoretical quantum physics as well. And that, that metaphor is terrific, you know, towards the end of the film. Obviously, we're going to get into spoiler territory pretty soon. So mm -hmm. if you haven't seen this movie, highly recommend going to check it out ASAP, specifically in an IMAX format. If you can't see it on IMAX 70mm film, try to see it in IMAX and also try to see it in 70mm film. Uh, there are a couple different formats being shown around the country and around the world. If you get to see it in a 70-millimeter theater, you also get a free celluloid strip of three frames from the film. It's a really terrific little gift that they're handing out. I believe they did it for Interstellar, and then every week of the film's first three weeks of release, there are three different film celluloid strips, and you bet your butt I'm going to try to collect all three. <laughs> Catch them all, man. And that, you know, the metaphor of the scorpions in the jar between the Soviets and America of... of these two scorpions, they have the ability to kill each other, but if they strike, they will kill themselves as well. Because if a scorpion strikes and they lose their, their not the, the, the striker, the piercing yeah. sting. Stinger. What's that called? Yeah, stinger. stinger. They die, kind of like a bee. The thing that does the stinging. What's that called? There's a word. <laughs> stinger. Stinger or something else. Yeah, stinger. And, you know, this movie, it's so interesting because we've never been closer to midnight on the doomsday clock in terms of nuclear war. But we've sort of in the last since the turn of the century for sure and starting maybe in the 70s and 80s towards the end of the cold war have been maybe lulled into a false sense of security that oh don't worry about nuclear war don't worry about the doomsday event the doomsday clock but technically we've never been closer to midnight and this movie kind of reminds everybody hey we are technically potentially on the brink of nuclear war every day of our lives it could happen any moment any year some kind of conflict, and I think that's why this movie is so relevant still to, today, even though it's about these people from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s, and what they did back then, because it's still relevant in our lives today, and if anything over the last six months to a year has shown us is that we really are kind of on this sort of teetering, tottering platform that could just collapse and flip upside down any moment, and nuclear war could happen because... So many countries are armed with nuclear weapons now, and you know one of the plot, one of the main uh, points of view for Oppenheimer in this film after the war is his him trying to control nuclear policy policy as well as limit what countries would be shared the secrets of nuclear uh, technology and nuclear um, science. However, that didn't work out super well for him when he lost his security clearance. And that's one of the main plot points in the third act of the film is Louis Strauss going after Oppenheimer because they disagreed on the atomic energy policies. But it's still relevant. It can happen today. That's what's scary. Yeah, ultimately that was the strength of... I, what if ending to the movie, to end on Oppenheimer in that field, just imagining total annihilation of the Earth... And it's beautiful metaphor of 
you know, the idea of the implosion device is setting off a chain reaction that will destroy itself and implode and create the the bomb. And he brilliantly ended the film, Nolan, with the idea when he's speaking to Einstein saying, we did, in fact, I do believe we did, in fact, set off a chain reaction that could destroy the world. He's not talking about the device they're building. He's talking about the humanity and its access to this weapon and the further development of it. That's the chain reaction. And he's cross-cutting that with that close-up of Killian Murphy and then cutting it with images of the Earth's atmosphere igniting and spreading uh, entire across the entire globe. And, and missiles flying and missiles through clouds. flying up through the clouds in, in nuclear Armageddon. And, I mean, we've seen nuclear Armageddon in movies before, but it's never been this movie before. I got goosebumps, and you felt the real terror of it. You see it in Terminator 2. It's like, it's crazy, too, but it's like, it's a sci-fi movie. That's what takes this. That's what's different about this. It's a, it's a real movie based upon real events, based upon real characters. This all really happened. This technology is real. There aren't robots with laser guns, obviously. So that kind of takes the... Yet. Um, yeah, <laughs> that kind of takes you out of the idea of it being a reality, but it's because it's a heightened reality in a movie like that, heavy science fiction. But this, this is not science fiction. This is historical fiction. I mean, it, it's really these things really did happen, and it's a constant presence in our life. And that's why it seems like Nolan had so much reverence for Oppenheimer. I think most notably for Oppenheimer after the bomb, that he clearly totally approached the film in that same regard of showcasing the dangers going forward and what it means and how the world has really changed because of this technology. And it was a brilliant, um, not so much an anti-war film, but an anti-self-destruction film in a way. And this movie has so many terrific elements to it. And there's going to be a lot to talk about in this episode. Oh, yeah. I'm very excited about it. And I love the opening with the nod to Prometheus. This isn't the first film in the last several years we've seen with metaphors of Prometheus. We saw it most recently in a very popular sense with the lighthouse, with Prometheus, the metaphor of the, the Greek myth there. But then opening the film with Prometheus here, where Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gave it to mankind. And his punishment was to be was to live eternity on a rock. And I believe the myth, he had liver his liver eaten, eaten by birds, yeah. but he didn't write that in the text. No, he wrote yeah. something else. Tormented. Tormented by what? For he, eternity. Yeah, tormented for eternity. Basically, and that's based off, this screenplay is based off the book, American Prometheus, which was written by, I got it right here, the writers of American Prometheus were... And American Prometheus was the inspiration for the story as well Kai as... Kai and Martin Sherwin. Okay, as well as a book of Oppenheimer's speeches, a collection of his speeches, which um, Robert Pattinson actually gifted Christopher Nolan during the rap party for Tenet. And that, because Nolan had read American Prometheus, but then he said after he read the collection of Oppenheimer's speeches, then he, after that, he made the decision to pursue this project. So it really was <laughs> Robert kind Pattinson. Of, kind of. It was, it was a catalyst for this movie So happening. I actually have a little more context there. Mm -hmm. So did Robert Pattinson actually like inspire Not completely, or give yeah. him the idea to make Oppenheimer a bit? Like you said, it gave him extra motivation. But however, producer Charles Rovin and also James Woods, who's a, an executive producer on this film, the actor who hasn't done much but now but it was huge in the 80s and 90s oh is that who i saw james woods and i was like that's not, it can't be the actor so him and charles rovin both have ep credits on this film and 
Roven pitched this movie to Christopher Nolan as well, his producing partner and partner, Emma Thomas, by telling them about the biographical book, American Prometheus. Intrigued by the book, Nolan asked to read it and he gave him a copy, basically, or maybe just referred him to a copy. But then Pattinson, so he had, I believe he had read the book already, but. And he put it, he put a nugget of that in Tenet. Exactly. So I'm yeah. sure that I'm sure that Nolan has expressed his interest in Oppenheimer to everyone in the cast and crew yes. while making Tenet. I'm sure Pattinson knew this. That's probably why he gave him a very specific gift. And then I'm sure then Nolan's like, you know what? I think I will make this movie. Mm-hmm. So Pattinson did actually help, but he wasn't like the original inspiration, which is kind of a, a thing going on on the internet that Robin Robert Pattinson inspired him to do it. Yes. He didn't inception him, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but he helped. He did yes. help, but it did it started before that. And I think obviously the main motivation for making this film has got to be to portray the story of the most important event in human history. And you can't deny that it was because uh, the release of nuclear power did change the world. And in a way, the world has benefited from it in terms of wars have been less prevalent and then wars have been less deadly. If you look at um, the number of deaths by war um, for each decade, the numbers have dropped so low compared to during the states of world wars, whether it be in the 1910s and then the 1940s and then the 1800s as well, where where wars would destroy populations and uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands and millions of lives would be lost. And so the destructive force of nuclear power has prevented major wars like this from ever happening. And that's why there has been, obviously there have been wars and America has been involved in several wars since on a much smaller scale, and yes, lives have been lost, but nobody has ever seen the, the kind of destructive force of the past world wars because of the release of nuclear energy and the release of nuclear power preventing nations from wanting to enact conflicts with other superpowers who have this kind of uh, armory. And this was a fear of Oppenheimer to an extent. He was afraid that it would spark a huge arms race and it would ignite a war but in a way it has it has done kind of the opposite where it's prevented major wars from happening in a way and on a massive massive scale world wars world wars yeah world outside wars. of the cold war yeah. which never technically was a battle fought mm-hmm. exactly but preventing another world war so far yes you know so far and i think it's also crucial to give context to you know when we say this was the most important event in human history, arguably. Nolan says this was the most important event in human history. You know, the word important doesn't mean that it was a positive, technically. It's just it's just a word with that just means of great significance. Yes. So I think it gets misinterpreted on, online a lot, specifically if people, when you say, like, this was the most important or pivotal event in human history, we're not saying in a good way. It's just that's what the word important means, even though s- sometimes people might think that important means uh, in a positive a ce- light Celebrating only, it. You know yeah. what I mean? A positive context, but just important, just from the literal definition of the word, the significance of... The atom bomb, the Manhattan Project, and the bombings, that was one of the most pivotal moments in the history of humanity. Yeah, there's humanity before the A-bomb and then humanity after the A-bomb. Which Katie in the film says, you know, the world's changing, reforming because the atom bomb is going to exist eventually. Yeah, it's it's a brilliant uh, take on the film and the reason why it works so well. And a lot of people were walking into this maybe suspecting this would be a war film. Um, and there would be war sequences, and we even got a lot of questions from people after they knew we saw it early if there were war sequences in it. But this isn't so much about fighting and the battles, but it's about what was the project that really won the war. And also, Nolan gave context to 
why the bombs were dropped and why two were dropped. And Japan was the last of the Axis forces that were still fighting. So uh, before you get into why yes. he, they did it to Japan, let's talk about real quick what happened while they were building the bomb before it was officially completed. Germany yeah. was about to surrender. Hitler had killed himself, so the war with Germany was over. However, we were still at war with Japan. And Japan... They had control over several territories and countries still all over the Asian Pacific, so they did not want to give up the territories they had taken over, and they, they had literally invaded and taken over other countries, and so uh, it was paramount to continue our war with them, and then on top of that, Japan stated that they would never surrender and they would fight to the very last man, woman, and child until um, there was nobody left to fight against the uh, allied forces, and so... Uh, the Allies, were, plan yeah, Allies yeah. were planning to invade. Exactly. The Allies were planning to invade Ch Japan as the only way to end the war, and that would have killed estimated hundreds and hundreds of thousands and even possibly millions because of how difficult it would have been with every battle, with every day, how many lives would have been lost on both sides. And so the American government, after the success of the Trinity Project, decided to drop two bombs, the first bomb to showcase the power of it, and then the second bomb to showcase that we can just keep doing this and doing this over and over again until you surrender. And that showcased to the Japan um, government and army that there is no point in fighting America and no point in fighting the Allied forces because they can just destroy us without us taking out a single enemy soldier. So that's the reason why Japan surrendered after the second bomb because they saw them fighting and continuing was complete, completely futile and they, nothing would come from it. So that's why it ended the war completely. So that's a lot of the historical context that Nolan in this book, and obviously the story of Oppenheimer is giving the film to World War II and the bombings, which we'll, we'll get into more of the historical context mm -hmm. of why the Manhattan Project even exists. But also I want to talk more about production thematic elements. You know, this feels very much like a Western in a lot of ways, and I think the aerial photography is incredible, but, you know, Nolan actually setting up shop in the production in New Mexico where Los Alamos was. I'm sure it felt very much... Like the like the Manhattan Project, where your whole cast and crew is there, you're living like in a movie camp in New Mexico, and you're building a bomb also, and you're all <laughs> anticipating when you're gonna hit the button and actually blow this goddamn device up. So I think it's really interesting how the production production I'm sure mirrored, mirrored the Manhattan Project in a lot of ways, and especially the set design where they basically recreated everything almost exactly to scale and replica. And even they said the bunkers that they built when they set off the Trinity test, and there were three different main bunkers where members of the Manhattan Project were observing the Trinity test. They were exactly the same as they were built in the 40s. And then uh, the one where Killian Murphy and Matt Damon were in, it was an exact replica in the exact spot where Groves and Oppenheimer were waiting and so that must have just been surreal. Like we we're not just we didn't just make a, the same set somewhere. We're in the same set, in the same spot these individuals were. So there must have been something surreal about that. And speaking of surreal, what I found really exciting about this film and very unexpected was Nolan's embracement of surrealism and magic realism, depicting the point of view of Oppenheimer, his his mental state, his mind, his inability to fully grasp what he his mind is conceiving as the reality of him trying to make sense of the things he's seeing and thinking about in the first act of the film you get beautiful imagery all crafted um, by the visual effects supervisor with nolan um everything you see all those incredible cellular depictions and 
light and neutrons and electrons and protons. All of that was done without CGI. It was all done with Christopher Nolan and the visual effects supervisor. And some of those beautiful um, visual effects were done on a microscopic level that they photographed, which is just... With IMAX cameras. Yeah, with IMAX cameras. <laughs> it's phenomenal. It's, it's really incredible. And then also the magic realism that we see after the bomb goes off of Oppenheimer trying to make sense of what reality is for him now, you see incredible things like background shaking behind him, whether he's in that closed hearing or he's giving that speech to uh, the Manhattan Project members celebrating the bomb going off. We get that beautiful, horrifying, and haunting sequence of him staring at the crowd as they're applauding, but he hears nothing. We see the extreme brightness overexposure from the bomb see people's faces melting you see ash and also the incredible sound design of the the shaking and also the stomping of the feet on the bleacher seats in that um in that um, ballroom i would say it's just he had never done anything like this before as a filmmaker so, so people like tarantino they'll use magic realism um, very effectively, but Nolan has always been very much a realist, not just in the practicality of his filmmaking, but the realism of his storytelling and writing. And he's never left that idea of reality until this film. Inception. Inception, okay. You know, when you're going to the different levels, being able to create from imagination. But I would say it's based on the rules of that world, it's reality, it's science. No, yeah, so, so it's I wouldn't not call quite it, subjective yeah, magic. exactly. So yeah. I call that science the technology. Whereas this is, you're, he's literally using surrealism to depict the, um, the, the mind of this person and subject, subjecting the audience to magic realism to, to portray ideas, like him stepping on top of the ashed, um, frozen body of someone. That was stuff that he'd never done before and was honestly so brilliant, so unexpected. When, the, when these sequences were happening, I was shocked. And it was so incredibly well done, so powerful so thought-provoking and nuanced and it really is they were some of the highlights of the film and some of the highlights i would say of his filmmaking career as a director oppenheimer's terrible moral qualms basically shown to the audience and you know i, I love those sequences as well and he really like hadn't done it since you could argue his short film what was it called doodlebug doodlebug yeah where he did a very surrealist short film mm -hmm. check it out very kafka cost Kafka-esque. It's really cool, but I want to talk about the sound design, then go back to those atomic visuals because I got some more information. So, the sound design of this film is sensational. It's so loud. And the footsteps, when we were revealed what that stomping, banging noise was from the trailers, and then that we kept hearing in the background the first two acts of the film, when Nolan first eventually teased that it was the stomping of the footsteps of the people in the crowd during his victory speech, you could yeah. say, at, at Manhattan Project at Los Alamos, I was incredibly moved. First being revealed that it was footsteps, then he doesn't reveal till later on that it's the speech. Yeah, we didn't have the context. But yeah. that was like a main theme of the movie, of the trailers and the sound design going for the first act or two. And it was sensational because it's this incredible, horrific metaphor of this, like you said, magnificent, magnificent success that's also full of immense dilemma and horrific death and, and destruction. And using that as a sound design element to add percussion to this film score that has no drums from Ludwig, which is really fascinating as well. But 
it adds so much to the thematic, metaphorical, moral qualms of Oppenheimer and what he's done. And I, it was just a sensational reveal because I was so curious what the sound was going to be. I didn't know if it was just going to be part of the music, but then to use that sound and understand the importance of what it means to the character of Oppenheimer in sto- as a storytelling device was yeah. sensational. They used it uh, twice in the film before the reveal. And to me, at first, it sounded like a train engine. You know that yeah. that sound that a train makes, uh, and they used it in in two moments of horrible stress and anxiety and panic for Oppenheimer, and those sequences we learn happen after the fact of the celebration of the bomb. So it's it was during his hearings of these moments of panic, and basically it's I feel like it's a depiction of his own inner turmoil, his own inner stress, and the depiction of like a panic attack happening in the moment. And because he's because in these moments it's connecting him to that moment of sheer horror during the celebration during that speech he gave, and then it's so it's it was so powerful to see that with the sound design and the sound design is going to win an Oscar. I think I predict that this film is going to win many Oscars. I'm saying at least ten Oscars, but for the production to win, yeah, it better it's going to win visual effects. Well, don't forget, Colors of the Flower Moon's coming out. True, true, true. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, that's also going to be a heavy contender, but I think this is really finally Nolan's year, and also with the crew he had on board. And visual effects, I think it has in the bag because of how incredible it looks. And there's obviously less visual effects than most other movies. Like, it's it's actually pretty minimal in terms of the visual effects you see in this film, but what you do see is absolutely magnificent. Um, and like I said earlier with those microscopic depictions of molecules of atoms um christopher nolan explained that he went to his visual effects supervisor andrew jackson who's worked on most of his films and won an oscar for his previous work for tenet and soon after he finished the screenplay andrew jackson was one of the first people who ever read this script for oppenheimer and nolan said i showed the script to my visual effects supervisor and told him i wanted to make i wanted to take cg off the table completely and see if we could come up with real world methodologies for producing the effects of the first atomic blast. Nolan also asked Jackson to try to show Oppenheimer's thought processes, thought processes which would be ultimately depicted in the film via abstract and spectacular imagery. This is like the atomic visuals that we see early in the film. He wanted to try and look into Oppenheimer's mind with symbolic imagery and visualizations of the quantum world. It's funny seeing this movie with Ant-Man and the Wasp in the same year. Why well, we got to bring that up, man? We're talking about Oppenheimer. <laughs> Andrew Jackson understands that he Nolan tapped him because Andrew Jackson understands both the computer world and also the analog world, and he's wonderful with that. He also spent months and months and months doing all of these experiments and figuring out all of these methods, some of them very small and even microscopic, and some of them absolutely colossal. So that's what's so interesting is we get the gigantic real explosion of the trinity test in this film and you contrast that with the molecular visuals that they crafted as well and the scope of that is just something i've never seen before and we walked into this movie thinking of the tree of life just from the trailer and the tree of life terrence mollick's film starring brad pitt and jessica chastain is a wonderful film it's one of my all-time favorites but it depicts the the birth of uh, energy the birth of life Everything from the Big Bang to creation of life on Earth to human beings coming to Earth. Um, and it does incredible imagery of molecules, of 
these quantum things happening that human eyes can't see, but Terrence Mollick and his team used extremely little CGI. They used CGI for some dinosaurs, um, but otherwise, everything they did was practical. And so I felt that this film was very, very reminiscent of The Tree of Life and what Terrence Mollick and his team crafted for that film. And then on top of that, this film also reminded me of There Will Be Blood, the desert locations, some of the uh, disturbing and off-putting strings that Ludwig Gornson used for the score, which was brilliant. Um, and also the Trinity Test Tower, the Trinity Tower was just so reminiscent of the oil derricks from There Will Be Blood. So when I walked away from this film, I felt like Nolan heavily used Tree of Life and There Will Be Blood for inspiration while he was making this film. And also maybe First Man and mm -hmm. Aviator to an extent in terms of story, Aviator, yeah. storytelling for sure. Now to stay on the atomic visuals and the quantum mechanics, so in addition to Andrew Jackson, who was actually running a second unit for this film, Nolan seldom has second wow. units when he makes movies, meaning when you, most movies are made, there are different units that shoot different things at different points of time because not all directors can be everywhere at once. So there's like another director that's another AD or second or second unit director, not, yeah. not an AD, yeah. second unit for, director. Yeah. For example, Andy Serkis shot all of the landscapes for Hobbits. Yeah. And so Andrew Jackson was running the second unit, and they were actually shooting t at the same time different locations. And also Scott Fisher was heavily involved in the visual effects. And so what they would do was they would create these visual effects shots, and they would send the dailies to Nolan while he was filming in New Mexico or somebody somewhere else. And a lot of the sequences they were being sent were at the same time as filming the atomic bomb sequences. So they were able to get, like Nolan was saying, like, when I was getting the dailies, I was using my, I was in my editing brain kind of understanding what I wanted to do with these sequences after seeing these incredible visuals from an atomic point of view. And so they were making these incredible atomic visuals with all kinds of experimentations, like throwing paint against walls. Luminous magnesium solutions were developed to create magnesium flares, ping pong balls th being thrown around. I think there's ping pong balls being covered in, covered in like like holographic paint or yeah. neon paint like thrown around. That's what it looks like. Gasoline and black powder explosions, as well as so many things to create those basic practical visuals of vibrating energy. It's just hard to trust. It, it probably took them so many times things to experiment with to create that visual that kind of doesn't really exist because it doesn't. Mm -hmm. You can't visually capture that for real. So it's so fascinating. And going back to the tower, that how it looks like the oil derrick, which is a great comparison. I didn't even think of that. So the production design, you said they built it to the T, and they were able to do this with the Los Alamos and Manhattan Project because there's a ton of archival footage of Los Alamos of the actual bomb test, the training test, they can look up online. Look it up. It's really fascinating. They built the bomb. It looks exactly like the original test bomb. The tower looks exactly the same. Rolling those rolled up mattresses under the bomb. There's so much footage and, and photos of Los Alamos and the Manhattan Project for something that was so secretive, obviously basically being so public now. They really did a great job using that to as kind of the bones for the production, but also I think it was important not to stick too close to it because you also have to bring the cinematic quality to the film and design things a little differently so that it looks better visually for an audience on screen. So I think it was a great, they did a great job, the production design, staying as true as they could to Los Alamos and Manhattan Project while also making it more cinematic. I totally agree. And it's absolutely stunning to behold. And Nolan, like all of his films, they they can have very complex ideas and very complex things the audience has to wrap their minds around. 
But he does a wonderful job, like he always has, of explaining these very complex rules. Now, he does so um, with the metaphor of a collapsing star to compare it to an atomic bomb. Now, before Oppenheimer is employed for, by the Manhattan Project, he is teaching at Princeton in Berkeley, at Berkeley at this time, while also researching collapsing stars, dying stars, uh, and trying to come up with all the information and research they can, and eventually he publishes a paper with his team on black holes and, black, and collapsing stars. However, like they say, it's upstaged. That date is the exact date that Germany invaded um, England. Poland. Poland, sorry. And so Nolan used the idea of the collapsing star to make the audience understand what an atom bomb is. And this is why Oppenheimer is talking about this. In the first act of the film, when he's a professor and he's describing to Josh Hartnett's character about what he's researching, a dying star, and then at that dinner party, Kenneth in Schottenberg is like, can can um, Chevalier. Chevalier, sorry, Chevalier is like, can a star die? And Oppenheimer's like, that's what I'm trying to figure out. And he explains multiple times these nuggets of information describing how um, when a star is collapsing, it closes in on itself, and that and that creates more gravity, more intense gravity, and more pressure, more energy, more density, more density, and so. There's that great bit with him and his student going back and forth in that in that lesson. This all ties to the bomb. This all ties to the gadget. And this specifically is how an atom bomb works. And it works through implosion. And so the plutonium and uranium inside of the bomb is imploded and compressed within itself. And that creates the ch- chain reaction of the mega force of, with this Trinity test, the 20 kiloton force of power... It's through implosion, just like a collapsing star. And so if you look at the, during the sequences of building the bomb, there are those like wedges, sections that they put around the globe of the plutonium. Those are all little bombs that, and each one of those sections causes a huge force of an explosion. And they test out those explosions multiple times in the deserts. Each one of those sections is triggered at at the simultaneous moment to explode around the plutonium and uranium evenly around that orb and that all those explosions by the sections of the bomb cause the plutonium and uranium to implode from the force of these outside bombs pushes it crushes it and that crushing of these horribly um, destructive materials causes the chain reaction of the surge of power that creates the atomic bomb and so just like a, a star collapsing creates, creates more density and energy, the atomic bomb is forced into contraction as well, which creates the more density and then energy until the chain reaction sets off. And the destructive force is 20,000 times the size of ten, TNT explosion as in the Trinity test. Let's stay on the bomb now. Nuclear fission is a nuclear reaction which a heavy nucleus splits spontaneously or on impact with another particle with the release of energy the process in nuclear physics in which the nucleus of an atom splits into two daughter nuclei when uranium-235 atom is bombarded with a neutron it splits into two lighter nuclei barium and krypton uh nuclei now nuclear fusion reacts power it's a reaction that powers the sun and other stars. In a fusion reaction, two nuclei merge, two light nuclei merge in, to form a single 
heavier nucleus, the process releases energy because the total mass of the resulting single nucleus is less than the mass of the two original nuclei. The leftover mass becomes energy. Now, one of the main, I think, interesting points of this film is the debate of the H-bomb, the hydrogen bomb, which Oppenheimer did not want to build, and he was against. And Teller, played by Benny Safdie, is trying to build, and ironically, they make the joke where, like, how do you create... How do you trigger an H bomb? They're like, well, nu-, he's like, well, nuclear fission. And they're like, oh, well, we have to do it anyway. <laughs> so it's like, we'll we'll keep going on nuclear fission to create the the atom bomb because you need an atom bomb technically to set off the H bomb. Now, the dangerous thing about an H bomb, and it's so powerful actually that it's never been used in a conflict in war. It's just been tested. I think it was 1954. The first H bomb was tested. 55, yeah. 1950, somewhere in the 1950s. Yeah. And it's such a powerful weapon. That, like I said, it can't. Be, it hasn't been used because it's so powerful. It has a thousand times, upwards of a thousand times, the destructive power of the atom bomb. Now, the H bomb is so powerful it could legitimately, experts say, completely wipe out entire cities. That's how powerful it is. There, it's estimated that uh, up to forty million people can be killed by H bomb. And so, with this film, they end up discovering that the Trinity test was twenty thousand tons of TNA. TNT, so it was uh, 20 kilotons. The H-bomb would be 10 million kilotons. Megatons. Megatons. So, whereas Trinity test, 20,000, an H-bomb would be 10 million in its energy force. So, that's how much more destructive and devastating an H-bomb is. And they, one of the reasons why Oppenheimer didn't want to do it was because the technology wasn't there for to, to make it deliverable. It would have been, he said, it would have been like taking it by ox cart and not by plane. Yeah, and it's not that the technology wasn't there, it's that it's a risk because they don't know if they could do it and why they don't want to waste all their resources on building something that might not be able to be done, then you lose the war and maybe Germany beats you to building the bomb. But also, I interpret this film and Oppenheimer's point of view, you could say his perspective, maybe he's hiding his perspective on the H-bomb. He's always very dismissive of Teller. Maybe he believes that that's a weapon that's way too powerful, and because it's so powerful, he constantly turns down, even after the war, when he's part of the AEC, that he doesn't, and as part of the advisory board, the scientific advisory board to the United States government, that he's so adamant and against the H-bomb and he, he never gives a clear answer why, I think, and when I watch this movie twice, I think he's hiding his position that it's too destructive of a force. Even yeah, yeah, a yeah. thousand times the power of an atom bomb, even even though he says it might not be possible, the ox cart joke, I think he's just hiding the reality that he believes if they unleash an H-bomb, world's over. And there's that great line Oppenheimer says where, talking about his moral qualms, he said he they came about when he realized that the the government would use whatever weapon they had. Whatever weapon. Whatever weapon so they, they had. So they would use the H-bomb. Yeah, exactly. And that was, that was the cause of his disassociation with forwarding any more development of these weapons after the bombing. And it led to the conflict later on in life post-war between him and Louis Strauss, which is one of the main points of this film. Because like Anthony said, this isn't really technically a film about war. It's a film about Oppenheimer, told from both objective and subjective points of view. Now, this is an unusual film to be written in the first person which was how nolan wrote the screenplay he wrote it in the first person of oppenheimer which matt damon said when he first started reading the script he was taken aback but also incredibly intrigued it might be his best screenplay i hope he wins a best adapted screenplay because it's that terrific 
Some other unusual things about this film, no Michael Caine because he has retired from acting for a Nolan film. No Hans Zimmer, again, he's busy with Dune, as well as not a Warner Brothers production or distribution. This is a collaboration with Universal Studios. And also, going back to the black and white and color, so Nolan shot this all on IMAX with three different IMAX cameras and one Panavision 65 camera, some of the highest quality resolution cameras on the entire planet. The film stock for one reel of the movie is 11 miles long and weighs 600 pounds. He used four different types of film stock and he used it depending on the sequence perspective and time period in order for the black and white. I'm sorry. Uh, he used it depending on the sequence perspective and time period. Now, in order for the black and white sections to of the movie to be shot in the same quality as the rest of the film that's in color, Kodak developed the first ever black and white IMAX 65mm stock for IMAX. And obviously, that's shot in 65, but then processed up to 70mm, which is what's projected if you're seeing it in a 70mm theater. And also, there are four different aspect ratios. There's 143 IMAX 70mm, 191 IMAX 221 IMAX as well as 239-35 millimeter. Now the black and white sequences are all objective. These are moments in history that are not influenced by opinion or emotions. These are fact. The color sequences, which are mostly from Oppenheimer's perspective, are subjective. Hence why Nolan wrote this film in the first person for a screenplay. And what I loved about the film and the story structure, obviously it's nonlinear, we're bouncing around, but also Nolan is so clever in the way he will go to the same sequences and scenes at different time, different points of the story using different coloring to show this is a subjective point of view and then this is a subjective point of view. You know, that dinner or the meeting with the advisory council post-war of the Russians and the Soviets and their hydrogen or nuclear uh pulse that was discovered that sequence is they go to that sequence three or four different times at different points in the movie sometimes it's black and white sometimes it's color meaning sometimes it's objective sometimes it's from Oppenheimer's subjective point of view I think it's so clever it's so difficult to write like that and also Jen Lane the editor of this film working with Nolan to craft just a complex story but making it very digestible with all the bouncing around uh, another great instance is when Dane DeHaan's character um, sorry Nichols hands him that subpoena at Strauss's home. We first see it in black and white from Strauss's perspective, and then we see it in color from Oppenheimer's perspective. But I, I, I just got to I, correct you about the film stocks. Mm -hmm. It wasn't completely shot in IMAX. It was Some of it was shot in IMAX film, and some of it was shot in 70 millimeters. So the difference is you will see it in the aspect ratio changing. So sometimes in this film, it'll go from anamorphic widescreen to full frame, it takes up the entire tall frame of the IMAX theater. When it goes to that full frame, that is true IMAX film. It was shot on IMAX film. The entire film's projected onto IMAX film, but this is the main difference. That's why those shots are so clear. Like, think about those full frame engulfing, almost like a block. How clear are those images compared Insane. to everything else? 18,000 resolution. Yeah. It, make, it makes 70 millimeter film, which is which before IMAX film was the highest quality film, it makes it look like 16 millimeter or even Super 8 in quality because that's, that's that high resolution. And so anything shot, like anything that looks like that with that square-ish aspect ratio, that was actually shot on IMAX film. Everything else was shot 70 millimeter, which is still large format and still 
twice as large as 35 millimeter film and 65 that's blown up to 70. The whole film is projected in IMAX if you see it in IMAX, but those huge sequences, and it's not, um, it's a small number of shots in the film because the camera, the IMAX camera, when it's filming is so loud, they can't use it for dialogue scenes unless the camera is able to be so far away. So there's a couple scenes in the film where it's pretty heavy dialogue and then you'll get like one big wide shot and that shot is like the whole frame. But then every other shot will go to like more of like a widescreen anamorphic look. So the widescreen shots, that's shot on 70 millimeter film, either black and white in color. And then anything that's full frame, that's actually shot on the IMAX film, which is made up of two frames of traditional 70 millimeter film. That's why it's such a high quality, and that's why the aspect ratio changes. So this film was used with yeah, those, those film stocks. There has always been 70 millimeter, 65 millimeter black and white film stock. But like you said, Kodak had to create the IMAX black and white film stock because that had never been needed before. And so that's the new stock that you just mentioned earlier that was created, that huge box to fill the entire IMAX screen. That's the 70 mil that was created for this film specifically. So that's why the aspect ratio changes, and that's why that if you notice when you watch this film, the black and, light, black and white sequences, the color palette of the 70 mil is different from the color palette of the, of the IMAX 70 mil. 100%, yeah. So it's just that the stock isn't quite the exact same balance but Nolan is very much like I don't care. This is I'm not I'm not altering this whatsoever. And I'm sure he actually likes it because he wants people to know that this is IMAX film. So that's why even the black and black and white sequences shots that were wider, the wide frame anamorphic film, seventy millimeter, like the traditional seventy millimeter Kodak, that has more of a cooler blue to it. And then the IMAX boxy film, I believe, had a warmer black and white tone to it. You know what? Does, do you know you can I'm definitely see about? a resolution difference, yeah. too. So basically yeah. what Anthony's saying is they take the two 70-millimeter, you could say, widescreen film reels, yes. and they, they basically put them together and vertical flip the camera. Two frames, not so reels. So shoot it like that. Yeah. So it's just basically vertical style. And if you look at the camera, so because it, the cameras run vertically, the film runs vertically through the camera up and down. And so when they shoot on on the 70 IMAX film, what they're doing is they're shooting horizontally. So they're taking the two 70 millimeter frames and they're turning it into one frame of IMAX film. And in order to film it that way, they have to rotate it horizontally. So if you look at an IMAX camera on set, it actually has a film reel that is parallel to the ground. It's horizontal. That's the only kind of camera that records like that because the film is so large in format the only way that it will work and go through the camera is if they turn it horizontally because once they turn the frames horizontal to make two frames, that's why when they make, they use two 70, 70 millimeter frames, make one IMAX frame to get it to work. They have to turn the the film and then that's why the camera, the camera film runs horizontally in the film reel. So that's how you can tell the difference of what was actually shot on IMAX film and what was shot on 70 millimeter, 65 millimeter, but it's being blown up and, sh and projected on the 70 millimeter IMAX film. Either way, if you can It'll, see yeah. it in IMAX 70 millimeter film, if not, try to see it in IMAX and yeah. also in 70 millimeter projection if you can. We've seen it in IMAX 70 millimeter. And we've also seen regular 70 millimeter. I mean, just some of the, sh just some shots of landscapes at the IMAX film. I'm just, you're fully immersed in the image, and it's just like my mouth's open, like. 
oh my just the shot of like cambridge i'm like oh my god the aerial photography in yeah. this movie is terrific hoyt van hoytema this is the fourth film he's done with nolan now so he yes. came on Since board for dunkirk. interstellar interstellar dunkirk Tenet, and now oppenheimer so four movies with hoyt van hoytema who is just an incredible voice in cinematography right now he also did nope last year which was terrific he's got a lot of experience with uh imax filming obviously with nolan and becoming a veteran and just he's one of those cinematographers that you know get you a dp who can toss an imax camera on his shoulder you know it's fucking awesome and they use amazing lenses like they have uh they mostly shot on hasselblad lenses but nolan owns a few vintage lenses that they've retrofitted to fit into the imax cameras and so what he uses imax so beautifully for is you think of imax you think of spectacular action scenes right but what's different with this film is he used it very intimately you get these huge close-ups of Killian Murphy's face and they, shallow depth yeah, of field. Yeah, shallow depth of field. So the, Nolan's favorite lens is this vintage 50mm lens. And 50mm lenses are the closest kind of um, correlation to the human eye when they when you look at a subject, when you look at another person. The 50mm length of a lens is the closest representation of that. That's why he likes to use it a lot. But also, it's a, it's a slow lens, so they got to open it up all the way. And so it has a very shallow depth of field, which means only a... a it has a small portion where you can actually focus on the subject. It's like a little layer, and you have to line it up, and you have to get it perfect if you want to focus on someone's face. But with moments like this, with these intimate close-up portraits of the character, he's coming in and out of focus, and different... Like, his nose will be in focus, or then just his eyes will be in focus. And there is this like this blurring of reality, but it's very intimate. And that's something that Nolan's never done before with his cinematography with IMAX, of shooting it intimately like right up on someone's face with an IMAX camera, IMAX film, and then this old 60-year-old 50-millimeter lens, there's just nothing that's ever been done like that ever before in history in film. He seems to only do it in the movie, just thinking about it after seeing it twice off the top of my head, he seems to really only do it with the most powerful characters in the film. Obviously, he does it with Oppenheimer a lot, but he also does it with Louis Strauss a lot as well. And then Truman in the Oval Office, he does it with as well. So yeah, yeah. And you'll see, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, he's plays Harry, Gary Oldman. Gary Harry Oldman's Truman, right? Truman, yeah. That's the president? Yeah. Yes, Harry Truman. So he does it, off the top of my head, I think those are the three characters he does it with. He does it with Emily Blunt. Um, when she's looking at the car arriving. Okay. Yeah. She, so yeah, you're right. You'll actually recognize these shots with this this specific 50 millimeter lens because he only uses it on very specific moments. It's in in all of his movies. Yeah. yeah. So it's generally he likes to use it at the end of his films. So he, if you, um, Tom Hardy and Dunkirk in front of the jet that's on fire. Yeah. Exactly. That's that old 50 millimeter lens, vintage lens with the IMAX film. And that's why it's got a shallow depth of field. That's why it's slightly out of focus. Heath Ledger's reveal of Joker in The Dark Knight, that close-up, that's why it has such a shallow depth of field. That's why most of that image is out of focus. Uh, Anne Hathaway at the end of Interstellar looking at the landscape, that's that exact same lens. 50-millimeter vintage, very shallow depth of field, IMAX film, huge large format frame. And then he used it here in this film so much he had never done that before. The first shot of Oppenheimer of Killian Murphy with the long hair at Cambridge looking down at the droplets of water, that is that old 50-millimeter lens, large-format film IMAX. Yeah, I think it's, it's beautiful. beautiful. It's beautiful. It's unbelievable. 
this film was so intimate. It's, it may be when you go to Hoyt's career, his most intimately shot film as well. Mm-hmm. But the way they just experimented with not getting fancy with like camera movements or anything like that. I love that style that Nolan does. He's not getting like these crazy crane shots everywhere. He just keeps it simple and, and keeps it real, real. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's like you're there. And I think that's one of the most, it's one of the best ways that we connect with him aesthetically as a filmmaker. He's not trying to blow your hair back with the craziest camera movements. He's just showing you the most insane visuals at the highest quality and the aesthetic is astounding. And he's he's still such a fan of handheld. There is a lot of handheld cinematography in this film. The entire, um, the, a majority of the Trinity test um, pre and post is handheld. It makes you feel that reality and that sense of lack of control. A lot of what you see with the scientists is a lot of handheld. He's always implemented handheld cinematography and his films. And I think that people rarely talk about that with this cinematography. There's handheld and interstellar in the spaceship. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> He's, uh, he actually, all, he debated shooting the entirety of Inception handheld. He wanted to. And he like last minute told Wally Fister, forget it. We're doing just some of it handheld. Wally's like, I got a bum shoulder, yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something about his handheld cinematography that it puts you into the film, immerses you in a different way. And it, it creates this kind of realism. Um, and when you contrast it with the very controlled cinematography of the rest of the film, um, it's, it adds that dynamic, that sense of unease, because he saves it in this film for very stressful moments um, and very suspenseful moments. He'll do the handheld cinematography. And I would say the most elaborate shot in the movie in terms of a camera movements, it might be when we're behind Louis Strauss after he gets out of his car and heads into the advisory meeting, the emergency advisory meeting inside like that ballroom. Yeah. We follow him down the hallway. It was actually a five-minute clip that was released online a few days before the release by Universal. That might be the most elaborate shot when it comes to a camera movement in the entire movie. It's, yeah, it's the longest for sure. Outside of like climbing the ladder with, with Oppenheimer and Killian going up to look at the bomb and make sure everything's okay. But, I think you're right. But, I think you're 100% right. Yeah. I thought the same thing. Because other than that, it's very simple in the in the camera movements. And, and I love that as well as outside of the aerial photography, which yeah. was gorgeous. And you know, Nolan loves his aerial photography, but he might have also, in addition to using that 50 mil the most, done the most aerial photography he's ever done. And that's something he's always done so well in his movies is getting aerial shots of environments, but also things that fit the mood and the thematic elements of the film as well as well and i think that you know the shots of the the clouds the undisturbed clouds that he gets in the early sh- first act of the film and then mirroring the end of the film with the rockets going and the missiles going through the clouds i think that was done completely on purpose to show oh yeah peace before the the calmness of the world and to an extent before world war ii and before nuclear we- weapons are developed to now the potential end of the world and nolan there's this beautiful visual motif depicting um, mass and matter. And so Oppenheimer has a great little scene with his eventual wife, Kitty, at the house party. And she's like, can you explain quantum physics to me? Seems like baffled. Seems baffling. And he explains that this glass I'm holding, this table, our bodies, it's all matter. But it's actually mostly empty space. Every molecule is mostly empty space. And then there's energy floating with inside of it. This is electrons, protons, neutrons. And it's just light energy. But, and there's this incredible, this incredible crazy fact about the world where if you took every human being alive and just 
put and took out all the empty space in their molecules, they would fit inside a sugar cube. That's how much empty space we have in us. That's a real. That's a real fact. What? So if you say it again, if you take every person alive, put them together, but then you take out all of the empty mass with inside of them, they would only fit inside a sugar cube. Like how big of a sugar cube? A sugar cube, sugar cube. Like a regular sugar cube. That's how much. That's how much empty space we're made of. But it's the energy, the energy that creates the matter. I'm the checking mass. now, man. I don't know. <laughs> Dude, Google it. Google no, it. I, I believe you. You yeah. seem pretty confident. Google it right now just to make sure I'm right. <laughs> but I'll explain what I'm saying. But um, but I think that I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm right. That's a real so fact. So atomic mass of all humans would fit inside of a, a sugar, sugar cube. cube. Yeah, just Google that. It'll come up. And so Nolan perfectly illustrates this multiple times in the film with his visuals with nature. And so the first. Wow. So read it. Yeah. If you took all the space in our atoms, the entire human race would fit. Took out all the space in our atoms would fit in the volume of a sugar cube. Yep. Almost all ordinary matter, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of it is empty space. Yep. Well, that's what he says to her. Like yeah. physics is the illusion or the 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 trick that like we yes can't pass through each other. That but, matter yeah. exists. But it's the energy within the atoms that creates a solid base. The solid matter. It's the energy. And that's why you see in the opening of the film, the first act, these visuals, the atomic visuals of what Oppenheimer's thinking about and seeing in his mind, whether it be those floating floating rays of light, whether it be these uh, electrons and neutrons interacting uh, or pulsating, that is what he's imagining. And, and no one depicts that with actual visuals in nature. One of the first images we see of the film is raindrops falling on the surface of the water. Isn't that the first shot? It's the first shot, yes. Yeah. It's the first shot. then it cuts to Oppenheimer. Yeah. That's the opening of the film. He does, a, he does that specifically. Their droplets are a metaphor for... The bombs. The, the metaphor for the bombs, but also for energy, for atoms, for empty space, but then there's these bits of energy that are moving and interacting and causing a chain reaction, creating energy which creates mass and matter. And then also, there's another beautiful visual motif in nature, and it's at Los Alamos, you see this floating dust, right? So, and it, it seems like it's like sawdust from the construction of the site. And there's Almost looks like snow. Exactly. There's multiple shots of Oppenheimer and various other people moving throughout the exteriors of Los Alamos, but then there's this sawdust floating in the air, just like... And it's but the, it's mostly empty space, right? It's just like these little specks of dust glistening and, and swaying in the wind as Oppenheimer's walking through town. That is a representation for an, an atom of mostly empty space with these tiny bits of energy floating and flying throughout that empty space. So Nolan perfectly paralleled real world nature and the patterns of nature with the patterns within an atom. And the patterns of nuclear war because, you know, going back to the raindrops, the opening shot of the ripples of the drops falling into that puddle that Oppenheimer is looking at, that is brilliantly used later on in the colored version, subjective version of the advisory meeting where everyone's looking at the table that is the map of the world and the scientist played by Krummeltz circles and says an H-bomb, Izzy says an H-bomb is 
a thousand times the size of an atom bomb making circles and then strauss is like make some circles over here in new york city in los angeles where they would hit us and then oppenheimer looks at the table he sees the ripples of the raindrops which are representations of the ripples of the massive hydrogen bomb explosions genius brilliance we're wicked smart what a fucking motif it's incredible and he's using nature you know it's it's correlating to the laws of nature everything you know what i mean it's really terrific stuff man. i think before we haven't even talked about the cast we which is stacked about- and and we're, we're an hour and yeah, we have barely. Yeah. I think we should get into our intermission before we do the rest. Yeah, because I want to talk more about. I want to talk about Ludwig Göransson's score. I want to talk about how they actually did the bomb explosion practically without nuclear fusion or fission. You didn't build an atom bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Got to talk about the insane cast of fifty A-list actors and actresses, <laughs> some of the best on the planet, as well as the movie and the story. We'll get more into it, but yeah, we'll head into our intermission. And before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to leave those five-star reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, a.k.a. iTunes. I love to read the Apple reviews, which let you leave written five-star reviews, so I'll read one off in a couple of minutes. I can't wait to get to that. But this helps us get seen by new people. It helps us promote our show on the platforms all over the Internet so new people can discover Raiders of the Lost Podcast. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. We have five different tiers of support and membership for Patreon. They are as low as $2, gets you access to every single bonus episode as well as the weekly chat, which posts every Wednesday on Patreon. $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100. Every tier has different levels of perks like video messages, $10 gets you access to our Discord community where we have watch parties and interact with you all the time. $25 is a great perk. You get a custom episode wherever you want. We'll do it for you. $100 is full of incredible things like free merch, a private watch party. Come on the show after three months for a fun guest segment. So Patreon allows us to do this show full time. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you so much to our patrons all around the world. This episode is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com. Use our promo code at MoviePosters.com to get 10% off your order today. They are also doing a movie poster giveaway in this episode. If you want to enter for a chance to win a free movie poster, all you have to do is leave us a five-star Apple review, screenshot it, and then DM it to us on Instagram. Now, if you've already left us a review, all you have to do is hit leave a review, and it will actually show your previous review. You can screenshot that and send it to us, so you you don't have to delete that and make another one. And if you don't have an Apple account, all you got to do is use an email to sign up. It's super easy. So again, leave us a five-star Apple review and send it to us on Instagram DMs. We will select a winner next week. Good luck, everyone. In the meantime, be sure to go to movieposters.com for all of your poster needs and use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. Now let's head into the intermission, everybody, and begin with the movie quote competition. You ready, Anthony? Ready. Better to be a king for a night than a schmuck for life. (laughs) King of comedy. Yes. Rupert Pupkin. <laughs> All right, here's my quote. Two people are speaking. Is that the quote or is it? Yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> what movie is that from? All right. So what is it you do? Government overthrows, flashy high-profile assassinations, the usual. Hmm. Say it one more time. So what is it you do? Government overthrows, flashy high-profile assassinations, the usual. I don't know. Red Eye. Oh. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's a good one. That's funny. Killian and Rachel McAdams, right? Correct. Wes Craven made it. That's pretty funny because guess this movie release year, Anthony. Red Eye. 
2005. 2005 is correct. Because <laughs> I just looked at it. <laughs> Guess this movie release here. Natural Born Killers. The Down. first movie that Antoine Fuqua made. No. Oliver Stone made it. You're thinking of... Natural the, Born Killers? Natural Born Killers, the, the Oliver Stone what, movie. What was uh, Fuqua made with Chow Yun-Fat? Chow Yun-Fat's not in this movie. This is with no, Woody what's Harrelson. No, what's the oh. one that he made with Chow Yun-Fat in like 96? Something uh, Killers. I can't remember, yeah. Natural Killers. <laughs> we talked about it yesterday. Something Killers. Yes, but it's not this. Okay, Natural... Not, this is the one with the... Uh, Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. Juliette Lewis. Juliette Lewis. 1996. Five. Four. Ah! 94. The replacement Killers. Replacement Killers. That's, replacement what, that's killers. what I was thinking. Movie pop quiz time, Anthony. What Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy comedy is Robert Downey Jr. in? Showtime. And Bowfinger. Bowfinger. Hey, I was going to say... Oh, Bo- sorry. <laughs> I was going to say Bowfinger before you interrupted me. That was my first thought, but then I was like, is it Showtime? It's both. It's Bowfinger. We'll give it to him. You said it at the same time. We got him, everybody. Got him. <laughs> it's good. It's when um, Martin's making a, a documentary, like a mockumentary, documentary about Eddie Murphy's character. It's funny. It's a good movie. All right. Downey co-starred in what George Clooney-directed film? Downey in a Clooney film. Hmm... Good night and good luck. Correct the mundo. Let's go. Also black and white, right? Yes. Yeah, it's a good movie. Now, let's get into our Raider haters, our haters of the week. Who we got? Raider haters. And he unsubscribes as well. And also, you said that there's a review that you want me to specifically read off Apple. That's a, a yes, great one. Do you, I know have... who, do you know who sent it? Yeah, it's... Hold on. Let me pull up the name. Because you said that they wrote they wrote the review with ChatGPT. Exactly. <laughs> so someone left us a five-star Apple review using ChatGPT to write the review. It is. Oh, we're getting a Darling Deco on the 13th. That's the review. Darling Deco. Let me see. But here are the haters. Some good ones today. On our strike post, studio higher-ups all over Hollywood are about to unsubscribe from you. <laughs> <laughs> That's from 2-1-Hal. Then we have Myron Reynolds. Um, you put a poll for are you watching Barbie or are you more excited for Barbie and Oppenheimer? And then Myron Reynolds wrote, there's no option for both. Unsubscribed. Oppenheimer decimated that on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, it destroyed. 88 to 12%. That was a destructive. Got a lot of votes, too. Destructive force. Um, one sec. There's a couple more. Sorry. Hey, sorry, man. Take your time. Sorry. Hey, we're all chilling, dude. Don't worry. No one has anger okay. to be, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> on our Oppenheimer post Retina Backwards wrote I was hoping for 15 minutes of pure doing <laughs> unsubscribed about the rumored sex scene oh the rumored sex scene in Oppenheimer we'll, we'll have to get to that as well yeah yeah because we'll, people we'll, blew it out of proportion yeah there's some crazy tweets that people thought were people real people found out that you. some people found out that most could, people are naked when they have sex <laughs> and they got really upset <laughs> that's it for Raider Raiders alright let's check out this 5 star review that was left by someone using chat GPT so let me, it's pretty long, so I'll get into this. Definitely not a paid actor. This is from Darling Deco. 
I recently stumbled upon a hidden gem in the podcasting world called Raiders of Lost Podcast, and I must say, it's a true treasure for anyone seeking intelligent discussions and captivating storytelling. What sets this podcast apart is the brilliance and charisma of Anthony, who effortlessly shines as the superior twin. Anthony's <laughs> intellect and insightful perspectives are the lifeblood of the show. His ability to analyze complex topics and present them in an engaging manner is nothing short of impressive. With every episode, he constantly delivers thought-provoking discussions that leave listeners both entertained and enlightened. His depth of knowledge across various subjects is truly remarkable. And it's clear that he invests significant time and effort into the research before each episode. <laughs> That's not it. In addition to his remarkable intellect, Anthony's vibrant personality shines through the microphone. <laughs> He possesses a natural wit and charm that instantly draws you in and makes you feel like you're having a conversation with a close friend. His ability to engage with guests and create a warm, welcoming atmosphere is a testament to his exceptional hosting skills. While both twins contribute to the podcast's success, it's evident that Anthony's intellectual prowess and charisma elevate Raiders of the Lost podcast to new heights. His dedication to delivering high-quality content combined with his unmatched ability to, speak, to spark fascinating discussions make him the standout twin <laughs> moreover the production value of the podcast is excellent ensuring a seamless listening experience the audio quality is crystal clear and the editing is smooth creating a polished final product that's a joy to listen to in conclusion raiders of the lost podcast is a must listen for anyone who craves intellectual stimulation in captivating storytelling anthony's brilliance <laughs> combined with his natural hosting abilities make him the star of the show <laughs> Prepare to be enthralled by his knowledge, entertained by his stories, and inspired by his insightful perspectives. Give this podcast a listen, and you'll soon find yourself eagerly anticipating each new episode. <laughs> Thanks, oh my, darling Deco. Oh my goodness! Wow. So I like I, the seemed pretty good. It seemed like a good review. Pretty accurate. Pretty accurate. <laughs> it's not my words. <laughs> Just saying, it seemed pretty. Seems pretty I, legit. Uh, who who thinks that darling Deco is Anthony? Raise your hand, or we'll leave a vote. <laughs> not, I swear to God, it's not me. I swear. Yeah. yeah okay. I swear to God. Pretty, I didn't even read that. I was waiting for you to read it. Pretty funny stuff. That's pretty funny. That's yeah, pretty good review. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, um, <laughs> pretty ridiculous. All right, what are we on to next? Streaming rec. Oh, sure. I did not do a streaming recommendation. What'd you do? What a loser! <laughs> I forgot. Uh, Blue Velvet, David Lynch's amazing film, is on Criterion Channel. I highly recommend checking it out. Before we continue with Oppenheimer, we want to let it be known that we are standing in solidarity with SAG-AFTRA and the WGA during this strike. This film, Oppenheimer, would not exist without the incredible artists of the WGA and SAG. Please check out the description of the episodes for ways to donate to the artists of Hollywood who are on strike right now. Now, let's get back into Oppenheimer, and I just wanted to say that the production overall was really outstanding in terms of the crew departments, and Nolan worked with a lot of new people for his crew, uh, most notably production designer Ruth DeJong. And I was absolutely, I think, right spot on in terms of when I walked out of the theater, it reminded me of Tree of Life and Oppenheimer because she previously worked 
Uh, and, she, and there will be blood because she previously worked on the Tree of Life, and there will be blood. That's probably why he hired her then. Yeah, because <laughs> so, we were actually wondering yeah. when we did our everything we know about Oppenheimer. We brought this up. Yeah. So she wasn't the production designer of those films, but she was the second in line. So she was the head of the art department um, for that production designer. Jack Fisk did Tree of Life, um, and there will be blood. And so since she's been a fully fledged production designer, she's since worked on Nope, Us, and Manchester by the Sea. So she's also Jordan Peele's. PD, which is, she's just top of her game. Then art direction by Samantha Englander and Anthony Perillo. So Samantha Englander previously worked on Nope and Licorice Pizza. So Nolan likes PTA and Jordan Peele, obviously. And then Anthony Perillo previously worked on Tenet, Babylon, and The Last Samurai. Um, so he's been putting in new crew departments and crew heads of his recent films, and then also, Lee Smith traditionally has edited all of Nolan's films, but since uh, Tenet, um, Jennifer LeMay has been editing Nolan's films. She's also previously edited Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Marriage Story, Hereditary, The Myrit Stories, and Manchester by the, T by the Sea. So clearly she knows how to work with actual film, which is, I think, kind of a rarity nowadays in modern editing and modern filmmaking. So she is fantastic working with Noah Baumbach, working with Ryan Coogler, and I mean, her stuff on this, her editing on this was remarkable. I think she's going to win an Oscar because of how she was dynamically able to insert so many visual cues and line them up perfectly with moments of performance and character instances and situations that perfectly correlated with what was going on tonally with the film. And also, the structure of the film is so complex we have multiple different story structures interlaced within one, some, one another. And she did a wonderful job of making the film feel concise while also maintaining its creative integrity as well. And that, I mean, harkens back to her editing of Manchester by the Sea, which is also a nonlinear story for a good amount of that film. So experience with nonlinear storytelling and editing. And marriage story. And marriage story yeah. as well. So I think that's probably definitely a reason why he hired her as well as her experience and her expertise at crafting and helping tell the story from a nonlinear perspective. Even though I'm sure the script was nonlinear as well, I would love to see the script and the differences in the film in terms of what they came up with in the editing room, the editing booth and suites. Now, also we got to talk about Ludwig Göransson. This is the second time he's worked with Christopher Nolan on the music for his films, previously doing Tenet, Oscar winner for Black Panther. And he's just one of the best composers right now. And Gorenson, I have a couple of quotes from him, says, Nolan wanted a violin-heavy score for the film, which stars Kelly Murphy, the father of the atomic bomb, J.R. Robert Oppenheimer. His thought process was that the violin is a fretless instrument. You can go from the most romantic, melodic tone and within a split second turn the tremolo into something neurotic and manic. He also enlisted his wife, Serena, who is an experienced and talented violinist. Violins have been used in a lot of horror movies, and Serena and I looked at how to take the techniques of horror clusters and turn it on its head into a beautiful melodic vibrato. He also said, I had never read a script like that before where he immediately puts you in the mind of Oppenheimer. You're seeing the world through his eyes. Oppenheimer is a genius, but he also has demons in his closet. Gornson also said the score essentially follows the three movements to reflect the different phases of the film. Like we talked about earlier, Nolan follows Oppenheimer's love of physics into the building of the atomic bomb and the Trinity test in Los Alamos. Then we have the United States Atomic Energy Commission hearing woven across several timelines with Oppie's romance with Kitty and 
his casual alliance with Florence Pugh's Gene Tatlock. Also in this film, there are no drums at all. However, there are different forms of percussion, whether it's from the music as well as the sound design of the film, which we talked about earlier. And there the, is a metal clanking. The clanking, yeah. yeah. You could say that's somewhere. During right. the Einstein scene. Yeah, in the yeah. Trinity test as yeah. well. And yeah. fusion. Now, this film score was pretty rare in that it was recorded the entire thing in just five days with the live musicians. Five Whoa. days, which kind of adds to the many erratic, high-paced, high-octane uh, songs and tracks as we're like in the Trinity test, lots of suspense building. Maybe it added a little bit to that as well. The the strings were really fantastic with the violin. The solo violin was heavily used um, capturing, and it captures the worrying and troubled mind of Oppenheimer. You get these like disturbing sounds in a way and um, these tones that just, they're off-putting and they're they're long and they, they st- he stretches that string, you know what I mean? And then you get these beautiful melodies and complex notes put together to craft these beautiful arrangements. And so the the scope of the, the of the music is massive and it does so much. And then combining that with the electronics, with the synths, um, with the sound design as well, uh, the rumbling of the sounds, the the sound design whenever we're looking at the visuals of the atomic level, of the quantum level, of the quantum realm, um, this beautiful, resonant, thunderous rumbling. Uh, then also, my favorite sound design of the film, it's got to be from the bomb, from when the Trinity test goes off. What was so unexpected was because Nolan is such a realist and he, he believes in crafting things as true to life as possible, for the bomb, everybody was expecting the bomb's going to go off and it's going to be like the craziest sound and like it's going to be so loud and thunderous and insane. But he puts you in the perspective of Oppie and he puts you in the perspective of the members of the Manhattan Project. And since they're 10 miles away... 10,000 yards. 10,000 yards away, they don't hear the bomb until about 15 seconds after it detonates. And so we get this massive, earth-shattering explosion... The biggest thing I've ever seen in a film, this wall of fire, the pillar of fire, thousands of feet tall, uh, and the explosive energy of these layers of flame and fire and energy enveloping and growing and layering over it- itself, but there's silence, and then, then he slowly brings in this very like m- melodic mel- tone. It's, it was so surprising how quiet it was and then the sound comes. The, the shock wave and the sound finally reaches the distance. And it is thunderous. It's resounding. Your seats are shaking. Everybody on screen is just trying to like hold on for dear life. They're not they're like, this is where the fear comes from the sound and the energy that's pulsating through the area. It was extraordinary. Because once that sound hits and that sonic boom, you're like, oh, my God, this is crazy. This is crazy. It was unbelievable how Nolan depicted the sound design of the bomb. Especially where Oppenheimer and Groves and those people are because they were at different levels of distance from the bomb. So the first group of people who are the leaders of the Manhattan Project, they were 10,000 yards away from the blast, which is about 5.6 miles away. 
pretty far, but still kind of a little dangerous to be that yeah. close to a nu- nuclear weapon. Then there are other sections in terms of how far back. There are three different little base camps for observation. So I thought that was really fascinating. And both times, the first time I saw the movie and we finally got the shock and the sound, I jumped. Like, it was a terrifying moment. It was like a horror movie for about five minutes, not to mention the suspense build up, which we'll get to in a little bit. But that sound design was so goddamn loud, and it really lived up to the hype. It really did. Now, how did they recreate the bomb practically? So Nolan didn't want this bomb to feel safe, and he feels that... With CGI, it's tough to make something like this feel unsafe because it's CGI and you get it, but to actually see a real massive explosion like this, it does make you feel unsettled, and you're supposed to feel unsettled. Now, they did a combination of a lot of things. Forced perspective, which we've talked about in the film. You know, Elf did this a lot with how they made Will Ferrell look so large compared to human actors that were playing elves in the movie. Yeah, Will Ferrell's not human. (laughs) (laughs) but forced perspective by making a smaller version of the explosion but filming it up close this optical illusion tricks the viewer into thinking the reaction is larger than it really is and they did really create a massively enormous explosion and bomb so to quote Scott Fisher the visual effects supervisor special effects supervisor we do them as big as we possibly can, but we do reduce the scale so it's manageable. It's getting clo- it closer to the camera and doing it as big as you can in the environment. So a forced perspective to make it seem bigger than it actually is, even though it's huge. But even though it was smaller, the team did build an actual bomb. This one was just fueled by petroleum instead of atomic energy. Fisher and Andrew Jackson, who we've been talking about in this episode, the visual effects supervisors, concocted a secret recipe to imitate the bright flash, which they really created, and subsequent vibrant rolling red plumes of atomic explosion to include gasoline, propane, black powder, aluminum powder, and magnesium flares. This is what Fisher told Sci-Fi Magazine. After filming the explosion, the team layered the frames they took over one another in the editing suite to create an effect faithful enough to the atomic explosion. And if you check out the actual Los Alamos archival footage of the explosion of the bomb it looks very similar especially some of the shots when when nolan gets the the shots of just imax the close-up of the flames and we're just like watching the flames plume and grow and spread they got that shot basically in black and white of the archival footage of the actual testing site so it's actually really fascinating but i think one of my favorite shots in the entire film is i don't know how they did it i'm sure we'll find out soon is basically that orb like structure that it looks like a sun or a star basically it looks like a star and it's physical and you know it touches the surface of the ground and and smoke and dust plume up around it it's one of my favorite visuals of the entire film and it's so fascinating and that itself looks like the archival test footage of los alamos with this giant orb of what looks like a sun takes up the screen for a moment before the actual massive spread of the explosion. Yeah, and it crashes into the earth and it sends up the dust and dirt. And so that is the earliest stage of the bomb. It's of really its, it's yeah. like a star yeah, being and, born. And exactly, hence the collapsing star. And the reason why the bomb the bomb was not dropped onto the ground. The bomb was just set off and detonated from the top of that tower because they they mathematically um figured that it's most effective. It's most effective at that height, and that's why Oppenheimer tells one of those soldiers about if they make sure they hit it. Try, they detonated from the high, right altitude, because first there's that initial shock wave of that orb, and then 
it expands along the surface of the earth and just exp- expands across the landscape. But it has to hit, it has to be detonated at that certain height for that expansion across the landscape to really happen and for the magnitude of the explosion to be as widespread as it possibly can. So they they figured out that that height of the tower was the best possible detonation atmospheric height for the bomb to reach its total magnitude. In addition to the bomb, one of my favorite parts of this film are is the political turmoil and ideology of what was happening in America at the time. Pre-Cold War, during World War II, or the begin- right before World War II, the spread of communism around the United States as well as the effects of McCarthyism in the United States. So McCarthyism, the phrase is thrown around a lot in this film, it's a, known as the Second Red Scare, was the political repression and persecution of left-wing individuals in a campaign spreading fear of alleged communists and Soviet influence on American institutions and of Soviet espionage in the United States during the late 1940s through the 1950s. After the mid-1950s, this was all spearheaded by U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy, who had spearheaded the, who spearheaded the campaign, gradually lost his public popularity and credibility after several of his accusations were found to be false. The primary targets for persecution were government employees, prominent figures in the entertainment industry, academics, left-wing politicians, and labor union activists. Suspicions were often given credence despite inconclusive and questionable evidence in the level of threat posed by a person's real or supposed leftist associations and beliefs were often exaggerated. Many people suffered loss of employment in the destruction of their careers and livelihoods as a result of the crackdowns on suspected communists, and some were outright imprisoned. Most of these reprisals were initiated by trial verdicts that were later overturned, laws that were later struck down as unconstitutional, dismissals for reasons later declared illegal or actionable, and extrajudicial procedures such as informal blacklists by employers and public institutions that would come into general disrepute through and by then many lives had been ruined and obviously at the end of the film they show this really well with chevalier who is in exile oppenheimer's brother can't find a job anywhere he has been shunned by every academic institution even though he's the brother of j robert oppenheimer oppenheimer loses his security clearance in the aec uh, closed hearings that are going against him as well as one of the men who worked one of the scientists is laying railroad track now it's the only job he can find so I think the underlying theme and reality of the ideological political war happening in America at the time is also really integral to the story of Oppenheimer, who never was technically a communist, but had interest in the ideas of communism, you know, hung out in the circles, was very interested in unions forming, not only just with teachers and and warehouse workers, but also even professors. They should be able to unionize as well. So he was very interest in the ideas of communism this however plagued him later on in his life as the conservative movement and republican policies were still in place of mccarthyism which was very much very similar to if you've ever read 1984 with big brother to an extent not as overarching as or as powerful but very similar in terms of people ratting on each other whether or not they actually were spies or not or or lies being told to gain power, which Louis, Louis Strauss takes advantage of, Nichols takes advantage of these policies that were popular in America to destroy Oppenheimer's credibility and reputation in order to control him. Obviously, Groves hires him to an extent, and Oppenheimer deduces probably immediately that he's hiring me because 
of my left-wing policies and politics and political views so that he can control me going forward. And also, it's the motivation for Louis Strauss to try and destroy and maim Oppenheimer's reputation, although not publicly, secretly, so that Oppenheimer can no longer influence American policy regarding um, nuclear energy and atomic energy. And so that's that's Louis Strauss's main motivation is to... He wants to get Oppenheimer out of any kind of power in politics because Oppenheimer had become so powerful politically after the bomb, being on the cover of magazines and talking about his opinions on the official policies for atomic energy going forward and wartime efforts. And so Strauss is... It's pronounced Strauss. Strauss. Strauss, Strauss. is... Strauss's uh, entire plot is, I'm going to send... So he, Strauss sent Borden, played by David Desmalchian, the security file for Oppenheimer so that Borden could write... He didn't even send it. He handed, handed it, to, it him. to him. Yeah, he handed him this file so that Borden can get all the dirt he could find on Oppenheimer and write a, uh, a formal opinion piece, basically, to the FBI saying that more likely than not, Oppenheimer is a Soviet spy in some capacity and this is what forced the AEC to hold the secret hearing to basically not try Oppenheimer but to bring his credibility and his loyalties into doubt to try and get him out of politics and it ended up working for Strauss um, the security clearance was not passed and then everything about Oppenheimer's past was put into the public into the official record and this story showcased the McCarthyism that he fell victim to by Strauss and Borden and I'm sure there were other individuals involved. I'm sure that the film just uses these two main players, but I'm sure there were other people that wanted Oppenheimer out because it showed during one of those uh, post-war speeches of many, uh, there were generals and admirals, admirals and lieutenant colonels there, and they're like shaking their heads at Oppenheimer warning about the dangers of nuclear weaponry and, and building a stronger army. And so I'm sure a lot of people wanted Oppenheimer's voice out because of how influential he was as a public figure in the scientific community. And so this is why Strauss employs McCarthyism to try to, um, dis to disavow in a way and to um, exile Oppenheimer from policies and from policymaking and from government. And it worked out to him, for him to an extent until mm -hmm. it backfired on him. And obviously the scientist Hill, played by Rami Malek, only Nolan can get someone like Rami Malek to be an Oscar role, winner, an Oscar winner who really just has one terrific scene. The two other shots of of Rami Malek in this movie, he's like kind of being dismissed by Oppenheimer. But this person has so much integrity and respect for Oppenheimer. He testifies against Louis Strauss in this film, and now Louis Strauss in this aftermath is so fascinating. And you know, he's the head of the Atomic Energy Commission here, the chairman. And just a little quick background on Louis Strauss in the aftermath of the film to kind of get a little more context and explanation. So. After the then AEC, United States Atomic Energy Commission chairman Strauss denied Oppenheimer's security clearance, he and his cohorts were haunted by the controversial move. After his stint with the agency ended in 1958, President Dwight Eisenhower nominated him to become U.S. Secretary of Commerce. And this is what he's being the hearings are for to confirm his nomination. This happens to every cabinet member. By November 1958, Strauss took office via a recess appointment. However, it was met with with staunch opposition from the Senate. Ultimately, Strauss's nomination failed, which marked the only the 18th time in U.S. history that a cabinet appointee was refused by the Senate. The bitter and public conflict was the last straw, Strauss, that ended Strauss' time in government. Although Strauss retired from working in the government, he lived on his farm, 
the Brandy Rock Farm in Brandy Station, Virginia. Despite developing a penchant for farming activities such as cattle breeding, he still remained active in public service during his final years. He devoted his time to various philanthropic endeavors, including the American Jewish Committee. Just around a decade and a half since he suffered his biggest failure by being rejected by the U.S. Senate to become a U.S. Secretary of Commerce. And seven years since Oppenheimer's own death, Strauss died in 1974. By then, he was already battling lymphocytokamera for three years. Downey is so incredible in this movie, we predict that he'll win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. You tweeted it um, like a year ago. Well, I, I tweeted it June 1st. June I've 1st. actually made two predictions that have once come true so far. My first prediction was a couple months yes. ago in our episode, I yes. said we had a debate whether they'd show the bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and I said they wouldn't, and... You got it right. Got it right, man. I, was, I, I, meant, to, I meant to give you uh, kudos on that. Thanks, pal. My yeah. prediction was that the Trinity test would be the climax of the film, and they would not actually show the bombing. So pretty much true. The Trinity test was a climax, but yeah. there's kind of a the third act is basically a long epilogue or, or a conclusion to. I wouldn't. Um, yeah, I wouldn't call it an epilogue, but I would say something. It, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's the rest of the story. It's the rest of the story, but yeah. you could say that the Trinity test was a. a, a climax to an extent yeah the climax would be um i would say the culmination the endings of both hearings um both the secret private one and the public one yeah i um, think the revelation of Strauss. yeah being that's the, the climax yeah. for me for the film the ultimate narrative climax um but there's so much power and gravitas and nuance to downey's performance it's his best work he says this is the best film he's ever been a part of He's always been such a magnificent talent as an actor ever since he was young in the 80s and 90s. And now everybody knows about his turbulent past. And then um, I think that he's one of the most important figures for Marvel's success and one of the reasons for Marvel's success because of how brilliant he has been. As Tony Stark, um, we love him as Sherlock. But I always felt that, you know, he is... I've always said that he's been kind of limited by the amount of large studio films he's been making. Um, so many superhero movies and then the Sherlock movies, as amazing as he is in them all, um, they're very long shoots, huge, huge movies, and they take up a lot of his time. I mean, for 10 years, he always had the Tony Stark goatee because he was just always filming Marvel movies, yeah. you know what I mean? Plus, he produces a lot of yeah, movies. Yeah, and he produces, yeah. But um, So I'm glad that he's freed up his time to do more creative projects and to really showcase his his acting chops in another way because nobody has ever seen him like this before. Um, he's an incredible antagonist in this movie, but he brought so many layers to the to the performance. And what really works is that there was kind of like um, a respect between the two men, but then it turned to resentment, and then it motivated Strauss going forward. And Downey portrayed every layer of this character and this man so effortlessly, um, and so, with so much uh, nuance. I was just. I knew he was going to be great, but I was shocked by how riveting he was in the film. And I walked out of that movie, and I was like, Downey's going to win an Oscar for this, absolutely. Um, it, I was just so pleasantly surprised by how well the character ended up working for the film. There's a movie that we've brought up a few times on the show, and it's Chaplin. Downey played Charlie Chaplin in 1992, Oscar-nominated, Lost out that year, but he could have won. And that is a really special performance, and that, in my opinion, has been his best role he's ever done. 
And, you know, the Sherlock performances are great. And obviously, everyone loves him as Tony Stark. But I agree. He hasn't done anything. Kirk Lazarus is great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm a lead farmer, motherfucker. <laughs> he hasn't done anything that sh- I think showcases his immense talent creatively since Chaplin because he has so much potential. Not that he hasn't done incredible roles this year because he has. He's done so many great, terrific roles. But Chaplin, I think, is really special. If you've never seen that movie, watch it. He's magnetic. It'll change your entire perspective on Robert Downey Jr. And then seeing him in this, I was so fulfilled in what I was expecting and wanted from him in this movie. And I knew it would be a career-defining performance from him outside of the MCU because I think it, I think this will be his Oscar win. I oh, think yeah. he's going to win an Oscar for this movie. That's how terrific he is. And the character's terrific because it's so ambiguous Louis Strauss' motivations until the third act of the film when we really discover that he's the one that led the knife to be drawn and, and struck, but he's not holding the knife, basically that metaphor, you know, power hides in the shadows. He's doing so many things in a nuanced perspective of acting in this film. He has these great little ticks that he's created, like the left side of his lip, he he like kind of smirks and fake and like subtly laughs with here and there. He's got a lot going on non-verbally as a character in this film as Louis Strauss and he really takes over the third act of this film after the Trinity test this really becomes Downey's movie to an extent for because Oppenheimer's mostly just in his trial and his hearings but then Downey in these private rooms with his attorneys you can assume who they are played by Nolan Emmerich he's a Einreich is a Senate aide, so Senate helping aide, okay. helping with the entire hearing, but he's not like he doesn't work for him. Gotcha. He works for yeah, the, the president. Yeah. And so he Downey's performance, it as it's as magnetic as Killian's is the first two acts, and as well as the bombs uh, explosion. But he's so terrific, and he really because a lot of people I'm seeing online it teeters off in the third act. The, slow, the third act slows down. I think the third act has some of the most tense moments in the entire film. Agreed. Let alone the bombing. I think the three most tense moments in this film are obviously the Trinity test, as well as the interview with with Posh played by Casey Affleck between Oppenheimer and Posh. My heart was beating so fast during that scene both times. And then the third act, when we're getting the revelation of Louis Strauss's master plan with the incredible score from Ludwig bumping and so loud and and energetic with the film, it's incredible. It's sensational writing and and acting. And Downey, it's his film in the third act. The third act is the fastest paced of the film. It's just it's it's the heaviest in terms of dialogue. So I think people... People who say that, I think they get overwhelmed by too much talking. It's the quickest paced, and it's the most suspenseful after the Trinity test. I think that uh, the third act of the film is brilliant, and it's just an amazing final hour of the movie. Um, But my favorite scene is actually between Downey. It's it's between Oppenheimer and Strauss, and it's in that banquet hall when everybody's gathered there because there's been a, a recognition of a Russian nuclear test. And that brings new stakes to the grounds. And Downey is fantastic in that scene because he shows that Strauss is not just like this villain who's just out to get Oppenheimer. He's motivated by, you know, trying to uh, protect the American people and trying to protect the country. And we don't really know he's a villain yet. Yeah, he's not, we don't know he's a villain. And also, but even his attack of Oppenheimer, the entire thing, he's doing it because he thinks it's, it's what's best for America because he's trying to, he thinks that Oppenheimer is putting us into jeopardy by trying to downplay how heavily the army should build, be built and how much uh, atomic artillery we should build. 
So he thinks that's a mistake, and that's why he's going after Oppenheimer because he thinks it's it could jeopardize um, the safety of America going forward. So he's actually motivated by a pretty good um, um, ideas, which makes him you can understand where he's coming from a bit. But he goes through shady um, areas and and pathways to get what he wants. But I think that Downey in Nolan's screenplay did a terrific job of making him understandable to really understand what's motivating this guy and what's driving him to do this to Oppenheimer. The thing with I love the the relationship between Oppenheimer and Strauss in this film, and it's very layered and it goes back years and decades. And you clearly when understand that after the war, when Strauss first meets Oppenheimer, it was in 1947 when he wants to appoint him the chairman of the AEC. He gets that house with the commute. It's the most one of the most uh, privileged positions in the in the country. That's why I'm considering it. And the commute. <laughs> and it has a good commute. Strauss clearly very much respects Oppenheimer at this point in their timeline. You know, Oppenheimer, like he says during the hearing, was the most respected voice in science in the world. And that's why he wanted to be running this program here and to be the chairman of the AEC, as well as saying to him, this is the, the haven for independent minds. You're the perfect person here, even though Oppenheimer warns him, like, you've read my security file, right? You sure you want me here? And Strauss is like, yes. But over time, their disagreements, obviously, on the H-bomb is a major disagreement they have because Strauss wants to build the H-bomb because he wants to ensure, as Eisenhower is president at the time, that they are that America is first in leading the race in the arms race because this movie eventually learned becomes an arms race versus trying to stop a war. With the Soviets in arms yeah, race. So yeah, so it ends up being trying to beat the Germans to building a bomb during a war to becoming a Soviet arms race, a race with the Soviets. Which is really ironic, and that's why there's some great pieces of nuggets of dialogue there. But the thing with Strauss, his biggest flaw is not that he disagrees with Oppenheimer on the H-bomb, but that he holds several grudges for his entire life against Oppenheimer. Some of them are fabricated in his own mind. You know, he thinks and he keeps saying over and over again that Oppenheimer turned the scientists against me. You don't know wonder you don't understand Oppenheimer. You don't understand scientists like I do. He poisoned them against me. He said something to Albert Einstein that day, which is why Einstein didn't meet my eye. What did he say to Oppenheimer? What did he say to Einstein? His whole life he's been fueled by this grudge, multiple grudges against against Oppenheimer for the scientists. His lack of respect being shown by Einstein, which he thinks he deserves, which why would Einstein look at you? Why do you deserve why is why do you deserve Einstein's respect? As well as Oppenheimer humiliating him publicly when he was trying to get his isotope, isotopes deal for shipping them to, what was it, Norway, I believe, or the Netherlands. He, um, he, Strauss didn't want, Strauss said it was a, a risk to ship isotopes to Norway because he said isotopes were vital to make nuclear weapons. And then Oppenheimer said, you can use beers just as useful to making atomic weapons as isotopes. Gotcha. And I love going back to showing the same sequence from different perspectives, different film stocks. Nolan shows that scene, I think, three times from different perspectives of characters. And a different reaction by Downey each exactly. time. Yeah. And the colored perspective is that Downey laughed, that uh, Strauss laughed at the joke. But the black and white perspective, the second time they show the black and white perspective, he's pissed off. Yeah. And he's embarrassed. Mm -hmm. So Strauss has held these grudges against Oppenheimer for so long that he's sick of it and now that he's be getting be getting more and more power and he's trying to see himself as somewhat of an equal to Oppenheimer who he says calls more than mortal basically like Oppenheimer seldom connected to us mere mortals 
now he's got this power. He could be a chairman. He could be a cabinet member of the United States. It's his turn to be get control over Oppenheimer for once. And he also feels as though Oppenheimer owes him because he made it so that um, Oppenheimer and Los Alamos remain hidden from the public. And Oppenheimer's remembered for making the bomb, but not for sending it off. He's known for Trinity, yeah. not for Nagasaki not, yeah, exactly. and Hiroshima. He should be thanking me for that. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, Strauss has worked so many things in his mind, like thinking that he said something to Albert Einstein, which he didn't. they didn't talk about Strauss at all, which I love that Einrich's character says that to him. Like, maybe they weren't even talking about you. Maybe they were talking about something more important, which yeah. they were, as well as like what you just said, how, you know, because of me... He's remembered for Trinity, but not for the murder, or not the, not for the killing and the bombings. That's yeah. Truman's blood on Truman's hands now. Yeah, exactly. And so he's he's heavily motivated to destroy Oppenheimer, and the sequences of that private hearing are at first shocking, at first com- confusing, but then shocking, and then you realize it is really just a, a hit piece, and the entire motivation is to just get him rejected for his new security clearance that's the basis for having the hearing but the real the real reason behind the hearings is to get him out of policy making so they're using the backdrop of he has a new security clearance hearing coming up we're going to use that as a way to set this entire thing up so that we can destroy him so that he never has to be involved in policy making ever again that's the whole reasoning it's just they're using the security clearance as the facilitator for it yeah they want to get him no security clearance get him off the advisory board that's the advisory board in the black and white color sequence at that table and i love the flower bouquet in the in the center of the table with the revelations of different characters that are there like when they show that nichols is at the table too i thought that was terrific yeah so he's going to be off the advisory board if he loses his security clearance which means he will no longer be able really to have a public opinion about atomic energy commission situations or or whatever they plan to do with nuclear energy and nuclear technologies and, and the rest of this cast is really magnetic should we talk uh, about the lead first killian um he's sublime it's the best thing he's ever done i you and i have been very long time fans of his since 28 days later i've seen all of peaky blinders i've seen all of his work um before this my favorite performance of his other than tommy shelby was the wind that shakes the barley which is a, a wonderful Irish war film. And he's always had so much potential. Uh, there is confusion online. <laughs> he, this is not the first time he's led a movie. <laughs> he, he has led plenty of movies. He's the lead of 28 Days Later. Yeah. <laughs> he's He just hasn't led a movie of this scale and this magnitude is what it is. And you and I have been saying it's nice that he's been getting his recognition in terms of the mainstream audience. But film fans like big cinephiles and big lovers of uh, all movies have been a fan of Killian for a very long time before Peaky Blinders. But this is his first major leading role in a huge Hollywood film like this. Um, He's clearly starred in plenty of them. I mean, Inception is a gigantic film. But um, Nolan, Nolan, I saw in an interview where he said that he... He's always loved Killian and always felt that he was extremely talented and had so much to give that nobody had really tapped and pulled from him. And he had always kept it in the back of his mind of like, Killian would be great for something to just put him as the lead. And um, he said that when he was looking at the cover of American Prometheus, he was staring at Oppenheimer and he's like, you know what? Killian 
is Oppenheimer. He would be perfect for the role. And then he said that, Nolan said that he basically just put the movie on Killian's back and let him lead the way in terms of where the tone of this would go. And Killian is nothing short of magnificent. It's one of the best performances of the last several years. Um, when I watched this movie, I've seen it twice now, I don't see Killian Murphy, I see Oppenheimer. I feel as though he's com- he completely immerses himself into this role in a way that he'd never done before, and he disappeared entirely. And the, per- the performance is incredible. You, there's so much going on in it behind his eyes, um, but Killian portrays it with nuance, with subtlety. Um, you can see this panic, you can see this disillusionment, you can see the horror, you can see the panic. Um, but then also there's a got- great amount of charm to him. Um, there's an infectious uh, nature to him that people are drawn to. He is a natural leader. Um, he's highly intelligent. There's there's so many um, facets to the character, and Killian um, really is nothing short of remarkable in this movie. Yeah, and Killian aesthetically just has such a striking presence on screen. The eyes, the cheekbones, everything about him. He, he does look like Oppenheimer. The stare that he can do of like what is going on inside the mind of a genius like Oppenheimer or Einstein, what goes inside of them. And Killian's always been immensely talented and has always had the potential to take on the lead role of a film like this. And he really delivered. And I was not, I had no doubt in my mind that he wouldn't be phenomenal. And he truly is. And he's a really terrific age for the role. So he's 47 years old, I believe. So he was 46 when they filmed this movie back in 2022 because the story bounces around Oppenheimer's life from the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, late 1950s. So he's a good age where he can still just enough pull off being in his 20s when he's at Cambridge, when he's in Germany. The long studying. hair makes him look very young. And then the, the lots of tan to make up to yeah. make him look youthful, as well as Oppenheimer, I think, was 38 years old when he took over control of Manhattan Project when he was named director. He fits in that mold of age really well, and then a lot of it in the 1940s and 50s. So he was a really great age to play this role because you need someone experienced, a seasoned person, not just on film sets, but also on Christopher Nolan film sets. So why not work with someone you've worked with five other times before, finally in a lead role? So I think it was just kind of a perfect like concoction of events and time to make this movie with Kelly Murphy as the lead. I couldn't picture a single other person taking on this role and giving such a great performance, and he's, he's absolutely sensational. And the cast is absolutely insanely stacked. So we get Emily Blunt as Kitty Oppenheimer, Alden Ehrenreich, like we said, as the Senate aide, Scott Grimes as the counsel, for Oppenheimer's counsel in the private hearing, uh, Jason Clark as Roger Robb, the, prose- he's the prosecutor. He's yeah, he's well. He's an amazing actor. He's terrific in this movie. Um, James Darcy is Patrick Blackett and a professor when um, Oppenheimer was in Cambridge with the Apple. Kenneth Branagh as Niels Bohr. Matthias Schweigofer as Werner Heisenberg. Um, Florence Pugh obviously is Gene Tatlock. David Desmalchian, like I said, is William Borden. Matt Damon is wonderful as Leslie Groves. He's just, I, I, I you can seen it with two audiences people just love Matt Damon they really do like, he just makes people laugh he has that he has that charisma even playing someone unlikable yeah exactly Benny Safdie is fucking terrific as Edward Teller the Hungarian physicist Josh Peck as Kenneth Bainbridge Jack Quaid as Richard Feynman Rami Malek as David Hill Casey Affleck as Boris Pash Gary Oldman as Harry Truman and David Crummeltz is outstanding as Isidore Rabi, um, nicknamed Izzy in the film. 
Uh, Crumbles was great. He has a lot of great scenes with Killian Murphy. I didn't recognize him at Halfway first. Halfway through the first time I saw it, I was like, "That's Crumbles, I was like, isn't fuck, it? is that Crumbles? I couldn't believe his performance. He's terrific. Yeah, he's really, really fantastic. Um, Florence Pugh, obviously, being the hottest star in this cast right now, she does have much less screen time than people might have been hoping for. She's a minor character, but she's really fantastic in her role. Um, this also ties to the sex in the film. There's two sex scenes. They're very short. It's not 15 minutes of balls and assholes like people were saying online. Technically, three sex scenes. Okay, three. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, it's actually minute of screen time in total. If where you, was the butt? People, people were saying like Killian Murphy's butt is shown. I'm like, where? Not at all. It's not. Um, but I found it to be really incredible. I loved. First of all, there's that famous phrase, "I am become death, destroyer of worlds." Nolan. Was, he had to put that in the film somewhere. It's something Oppenheimer's famous for saying. And he decided to put this line and deliver it while having intercourse with Gene. I thought that was brilliant. Um, you're discussing, he's talking about the idea of being a godlike destructive force with the power to destroy existence um, while you're enacting, carrying out the act of creating life in terms of sex. It was, I, I the first time I saw it, I was like, holy fuck, no pun intended. Like, that's a perfect place to put this line. And it was just really, I was, my mind was blown. I was like, that was just absolute sheer brilliance. But Jean is a great character in this film. An early romance, an early flame of Oppenheimer's. She's a troubled woman. Um, it's a complicated relationship. And eventually, they have a falling out. And she is a, a known communist. And that bring, that comes back to bite him in the ass later in the film during the private hearings. And she's someone who was reported to have committed suicide. I'm not sure if you noticed. Did you notice the two differences of her death? Oh, yeah. There was a hand pulling, pushing her face in the, toilet, in the tub. So Nolan very subtly showed two possibilities of her death. So she was pronounced as committed suicide with some drugs in her system. He showed her drowning herself in the tub. But then he showed you a different perspective of her being held, her head being held in the tub by a hand with a black glove, implying that government forces may have killed Jean because of her uh, meeting with Oppenheimer in Chicago. Now, I thought that was absolutely brilliant to suggest that, and most more likely than not, that's probably true. What happened? That's definitely a possibility of. You know, the head of the Manhattan Project meeting with a communist, they probably killed her out, out of fear of her knowing anything about the Manhattan Project. Uh, I thought that was just such a brilliant, subtle hint that it's like it's a blink and you miss it kind of moment, but it's there. The hand is there. And it's, it's just absolutely brilliant filmmaking right there. And Florence Pugh is wonderful, like always. More of the cast. Tom Conti as Albert Einstein is terrific. Josh Hartnett as Ernest Lawrence Really perfect, kind of like an all-American scientist kind of character yeah. who I think he was very charismatic. He was film. great. Yeah, He did a great job. Uh, Alex Wolf as Luis Alvarez. We have Michael Angerano as Robert Sieber. Olivia Thurlby is in this. Olivia Thurlby is in this as well, for sure. Dylan Arnold as Frank Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer's brother. Then we have some other... Who else is a recognizable name? You said David Gary Desmolchian. Oldman as Truman. Yeah. Um, and then Dane Dehan as Kenneth Nichols. He's terrific, and he has a good amount of dialogue, and he's got some juicy moments in this film, for sure. He plays sure. a good villain. I thought he was terrific. He's like kind of like... He's a scary guy. 
he yeah his voice is so sinister and he, he works so well as an antagonist in, in mm -hmm. movies i think that's why he he works to an extent for green goblin it didn't work for him playing hero character roles. itself yeah. but uh, he does work really well as a villain and an antagonist i think casey affleck is boris posh he's in posh he's in one scene terrifying casey's a i thought he was gonna kill him incredibly talented actor oscar winner from obviously manchester by the sea but goodness he's this, this scene is just, like I said, my heart was beating fastest during the scene with Posh in Oppenheimer. I was terrified of what could happen. Yeah. And then the second viewing even more, because then you really get context of what they're talking about in terms of that that conversation is Posh is in charge of Posh. security. Posh is in charge of security of the Manhattan Project. And Oppenheimer brought up to the guy who was who, the other uh, army officer who worked in that office Look out for Elton because this is after he's approached by his friend Chevalier in his kitchen about potentially sending secrets to the Soviets through communist back channels on campus at Berkeley through Elton. So Elton approached Chevalier to approach Oppenheimer in case he has some intelligence that he wants to spread to our communist allies. So that's why Oppenheimer brings up Elton thinking that if I just Bring this name up. That'll be the it. I don't want to get my French Chevalier into trouble. And this whole interrogation, but not interrogation between Pash and Oppenheimer, is so tense because I love the music that Ludwig yeah, brings to it. Scary. It's like eerie violin sound. It's horror music, man. Where Pash is trying to get more information on. He's trying to get the name Chevalier from Oppenheimer, but he doesn't want to give it up. And he's just interrogating him because now I think Oppenheimer finally sees the ramifications of McCarthyism politics and what can happen to people that are close to him and his friends. And he doesn't want to get Chevalier into trouble. Eventually, he has to give that name up months later, which puts the Chevalier into exile for being a communist. But like he said, I, I believe who said that Oppenheimer still was under the impression that good American schoolboys, they don't rat on their friends. They don't want to get their friends into trouble. So he tells that that lie basically which comes back later at the hearing so this whole interrogation pseudo interrogation by pash is terrifying it's eerie trying to get the name chevalier but also to basically shows oppenheimer that anyone that is associated with communism can get into big trouble oh yeah um emily blunt is also fantastic in this movie and she plays kitty oppenheimer oppenheimer's wife uh, it's a t it's a difficult role and it's something that you got to commend Nolan for having the, you know, the audacity to face blowback because of the portrayal of a, a woman in this film. It's, it doesn't, she is, she's a difficult character. She is an alcoholic. She's an unhappy mother. Um, but she has a lot of negative qualities. Um, so that's something you don't really see in Hollywood anymore. Um, but I think it's essential to be truthful to people. And I also, I, I look at Kitty as someone who, was an extremely capable person and probably was destined to do um, something great with her life, but she was um, pulled down by the time, by the era, to be a housewife. Demoted. She's a biologist exactly. demoted to housewife. Exactly. So I think that um, Emily Blunt beautifully portrays someone who has been kind of forced into a life that she hates, unfortunately. Um, and that's really where what where I think the performance comes from in terms of, you know, she's not 
a great mom. She, she her, It's difficult for her to be a mom. She calls the kids, the brats are asleep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, being a mother is difficult for her. Motherhood does not agree with her. She should be doing something um, more substantial with her life, but she's been delegated to housewife. And so I think that informs the entire performance for Emily Blunt of, you know, not being the best wife, not being the best mom, um, being an alcoholic, um, being extremely depressed. But people, that's, that's, truth, that's the truth of reality for many people. And so I thought it was commendable for them to, you know, you know what, it doesn't make women look great. Some people might watch this movie and be like, the women in this movie were portrayed so horribly. But, you know, you got to be truthful to the people. This woman really struggled with these issues. And that's a, a lot of people who do struggle with these issues. So I think it's important to make sure you maintain that integrity to the story, to the character. And then she eventually does become a very strong individual. And she stands up for herself in the hearing and even basically walk like, run circles around um, the prosecutor, Rob, uh, Ro uh, Roger Rob, whatever his name is. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so I think it's difficult for me. I think some people might not like it, but I think it's essential to be truthful to the humans that of the story you're telling. I, I look at Kitty as someone who, like you said, has so much potential, and she jokes I've been demoted to housewife somehow. That has just been put down by, like the air you said, and as well as the men in her life. She's on her third marriage now. Her first husband was a nobody. Second husband died in the war, died by ideology, shouldn't have been there. And then third husband was just someone who's nice. So she's got this obviously ceiling that she can't get out of and she can't climb up any higher. And I think that's what's happened to her. Is, and I think Nolan does a great job of showcasing what that's done to her as a human being, how it's just broken her down so much. And then, but she does have great moments of power and control, and she is a driving force in the background of Oppenheimer and his motivation. And you know, I love how she he, she doesn't let him get away with his infidelity. Like you don't get to commit the sin and then make us all feel sorry for you. Get your fucking shit together. These people <laughs> depend on you, basically. So it's it's a tragic character, Kitty, as well as you know you look at someone like Olivia Thirlby's character in this film, who is a Harvard educated chemist and scientist, and she's typing basically all she can do is type at alamos and then oppenheimer recognizes like get her on the plutonium team mm -hmm. she deserves to be there she's intelligent enough she can do just as much as anybody else here at manhattan project working on the science of the of the atom bomb and then also other nuggets of misogyny that nolan spread throughout the film like when they're all the men in olivia thilby characters she's the only female on the team they're working on the device they're going back and forth about how her reproductive organs could be at risk near so much plutonium and she's like well technically your productive your reproductive organs are more exposed than mine there have been no studies on mine but what about you yours are hanging out so basically great nuggets of the misogyny of the time and how characters like olivia thurble's character are able to rise up and get the respect she deserves and she ends up being somewhat of a leader for the unionization as well as, you know, those group discussions about whether or not the bomb should be used since Germany's about to surrender, Hitler's dead. Should we really launch this bomb and drop it on Japan? What are the ramifications, yeah. the moral ramifications of our theory and our tests? Yeah, and then on Benny Safdie it also was really remarkable. We love Benny. He's a great um, filmmaker, but um, Good Time obviously showed that he can act. But he's always been acting in, he was always acting in their movies, the Safdie Brothers movies when they were making short films. Um, there's someone on the Criterion Channel, if you want to watch some of their short films that Benny was like the lead actor of. 
Um, and one of them, he plays like uh, one of those street performers who act like a statue and like do crazy movements. Like he and he's like all painted in gold. It's really he's no a, way. He, yeah, he's a wonderful performer. And obviously, he's been pursuing that so much where he backed out of co-directing their new film. And so Josh is taking over the reins of directing that film. Um, but Benny still co-wrote and he's producing it with um, Josh. But um, Adam Sandler starring in that. But he's, I think he's exploring being an actor. And he's really sensational in Licorice Pizza, Paul Thomas Anderson's last film. And so what happened was um, Nolan had liked Licorice Pizza and was curious about Safdie. Because Safdie, Benny Safdie, there's something... He he has a striking look as a human being. That's and that's important to be. I think to be a star, to be he's interesting to look at. Um, and he's just he has an interesting presence. There's something attractive to audiences to him. I think, and I think great directors recognize that. That's why Paul Thomas Anderson cast him in his last film, and that's why Nolan, after watching Licorice Pizza, he's like, "Who's this? Tell me about this guy, Benny Safdie. Like, not like who is he, but like tell me what it's like to work with him." And Paul Thomas Anderson said that Safdie is. An incredible actor, but also, even more so, he's just a wonderful guy to be around. Uh, and I recommend casting him for for anything. And so Nolan cast Safdie. But the challenge was, you know, Safdie's a guy from New York. He, he's playing a Hungarian physicist in this. So he spent a long time working on this accent, this Hungarian accent. And eventually he sent um, some voice recordings to Nolan a couple months before filming. And after listening to the recordings, apparently by his own words, over a hundred times, Nolan was satisfied with the voice work and was like, okay, you can pull this off. And in terms of the accent, I'm not Hungarian. I'm just a dumb American. But to me, the accent sounded great. And Safdie as a performer was really wonderful and a surprising addition to the cast. Hey, man, you're not dumb. (laughs) There's so many other things I want to talk about. I want to talk about the Trinity test itself. And this is suspense built the entire film basically for this test that we're waiting for. And, you know, the building of the Manhattan Project and the town. And I think maybe my favorite shot of the movie is when Izzy tells Oppenheimer to stop dressing like a soldier and be yourself, you're a scientist. And then with Ludwig's score, and then Oppenheimer gets his suited up, puts his hat on. Incredible shot behind the left shoulder of Kelly Murphy the New Mexico desert in the distance. It's sensational. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. But this really is like, this movie is such a thriller, but there's a biopic hidden inside of it at the same time. And leading up to the Trinity test, is it going to work? Putting the marbles in those jars. Can we enrich enough plutonium and uranium? Can we get this done? The different theories of how they should go about this the the strife and turmoil between the scientists you know we're all stuck in this little town this little western town all it's missing is a saloon like kitty says because it looks just like a western or, or a town in the middle of nowhere in the desert because it is and eventually getting to the test and you know there's the suspense built where there might be a dud because like what can we do before the test should we just run one more uh device test or implosion one more implosion test like yeah it couldn't hurt and then that implosion test fails like it's not implosion it's one of the explosion explosive devices around the so yeah Yeah. so should we run let's run one of those tests and it fails are we about to fire a dud (laughs) we have all we have everything planned to a t if we fire a dud that's two years of uranium and plutonium wasted we'll lose two years on the Germans, if or not any on the Germans, if this happens, but not anymore. But on the Soviets, when you realize eventually. how long it took to get all that material, you're like, holy shit! I know. And then, fucking man, 
one last thing. What could stop us? Divinity, divine power of the gods, the weather. <laughs> Are the gods trying to stop the Trinity test from happening with this intense weather, this rain, this wind? But Oppenheimer knows this desert. He knows the storm will break by dawn. Set this to 5.30 a.m. That's when we'll launch the test. I love how Groves is like, sign off on your weather report, and if it if you're wrong, I'll, I'll hang you. <laughs> like he says, you have to sign off on it. If you're wrong, it's your fault. But also, we all know that the test was successful, but yeah. still when you're watching this movie, the ignition of the atmosphere is possible. It would ignite the atmosphere. We could end the world. We could destroy the world when we push that button, when we blow the bomb up and do our Trinity test. We could destroy the world. And the suspense is built so well, and then eventually getting to the test and the aerial shots at night of the lights powering up and getting the bomb going. It's like a 20-minute sequence, but it feels like no time passed at all because you feel like you're in the moments. And it was incredibly ex exciting and so exceeded my expectations of what I thought the device explosion was going to be like. I was so anxious the, the two minutes leading up to it, the countdown. I was like, oh my god, moving around, shuffling. <laughs> I was like fixing my glasses. I was like, oh my god. I was like, oh my god. I was like, best I was, sitting position. I was adjusting my glasses perfectly so that like I would have perfect vision <laughs> of the side that we were about to be holding. But glass stops the UVs. What stops the glass? <laughs> um, and it's all accurate to how they actually prepared, whether they were lying down or um, wearing something over their eyes. Uh, there were two act two members of the Trinity, of the Trinity Project actually were temporarily blind because they accidentally looked at the explosion. So they were blinded for several months, actually, but they got their vision back. That's how dangerous it was to look at it with exposed eyes because the the explosion, like you said, they crafted these explosions to meet the brightness of the real Trinity test. It was It's so remarkable. It's actually brighter than the sun, this explosion, um, which is hard to believe, but that's how bright it is. And that's why... You know, I think it was really brilliant for Hoyt and Nolan to kind of overexpose the blast a little bit and to show how bright it was. And the overexposure effect is used multiple times, both during the event and then also during um, Oppenheimer's panic attacks um, throughout the course of the film and the hearing and then during the, the celebration. So I think the overexposure of light um, is portrayed really incredibly artistically throughout the course of the film to relate to the explosion happening. Gary Oldman's also terrific in this movie. Yeah. In one scene, he plays Harry S. Truman. He previously played Prime Minister Winston Churchill in The Darkest Hour, and he's worked with... Ironically, the opposite to the British PM. <laughs> it's so funny. Pretty funny. And he's obviously worked with Nolan in three movies before this with Jim Gordon in the Gotham trilogy, the yeah, Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah, it was nice to see him back in a Nolan movie. So it was cool to see him back, and I think he's exceptional in this film now. I think this is a critical moment in the film, and Nolan specifically put this in and, and had Truman call Oppenheimer a crybaby because this was a critical moment to Oppenheimer in the story because when Oppenheimer goes into the Oval Office to meet with Harry Truman, again, this is color, so this is Oppenheimer's perspective, his subjective perspective. He goes in there, wants to warn Truman about nuclear proliferation as well as in a way confesses guilt of having blood on his hands and Truman responds by sarcastically giving him a handkerchief 
and saying no one cares who built the bomb. People only care about, in, in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, they only care about who dropped the bomb. I dropped the bomb. I have the blood on my hands. And then he calls him a crybaby as he's walking out the door. And this was, I thought he'd be more in the movie, but this is all you needed. And I feel like only only Nolan can get actors like Rami Malek and Gary Oldman to be in five minutes of a movie, and they'll do it. I know. Um, it's crazy. And I forgot he was in the movie until he showed up, and I was like, oh my god, it's, it's Gary. Um, he's remarkable in that scene. And then Rami Malek was just outstanding because... Throughout the course of the film, I was like, is Malik just there just because he wants to be? Because <laughs> <laughs> he's being treated yeah. like crap. He's not even saying anything. Because Oppenheimer knocks down his, his, uh, his clipboard his twice. Clipboard when he, twice. For the petition. And, and then, the clipboard inside the lab. He doesn't knock it down the lab under the, on the football field. He takes his pen. He's Take, like, he we drops don't need the pen. We don't yeah. need that yeah, for the record. It. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, but then Rami destroys Downey during the hearing. Um, and he has three solid minutes of just straight up monologue and he torches the screen. So that's why he did it. Obviously he's an Oscar winner, but I think that every actor in Hollywood, they just jump at the chance to work with Nolan. I saw an Emily Blunt interview where she's like, yeah, when Chris Nolan calls you up, you, you kind of like, just, you just say yes, like whatever, whatever it is. Yes, I'll do it. Well, that's with Matt Damon. He was on a break from acting, he promised his wife that he would take a break from acting because he's a busy guy as well as producing. So they made one, you caveat. know, uh, caveat. If if Christopher Nolan calls, can I do the movie? And so Christopher Nolan called, <laughs> and Matt's like, "Sorry, babe, gotta <laughs> that was do, the deal. Gotta do the movie. That was part of the deal." They actually live in the same building, Nolan really? and Damon. Live they, in the same building. They don't they, have their own massive houses. No, they must live in a fancy apartment. They probably complex. have both. I'm yeah. sure they have homes. But as he well. said they he said they they live in the same apartment complex. I bet it's not even considered an apartment complex. It's probably considered just like an estate complex. <laughs> <laughs> but he said that um, they were in an elevator. Just it was um, Krasinski was in an elevator with with Nolan in the apartment complex when um, Chris went to see Damon. And, or maybe it's Krasinski and, and, and Nolan live in the same building. Emily Blunt and Krasinski and, and, live and in the same Nolan building might, as Nolan. Nolan lives in the same building as one of those actors. But uh, Krasinski um, was talking about, they were, apparently they were shooting shit about directing, and then Nolan hinted that he's like going to see someone about his new role, uh, new role in his movie. And then um, I think Krasinski, I think maybe told Emily like, hey, maybe you might be coming to see you. <laughs> uh, something like that. Um, but thanks for all this unverified uh, information. Anthony. Nolan lives in the same building as one of these people. I, I picture Nolan living it's in a, like a typical a Los Damon. Angeles two bedroom apartment. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Damon said in an interview. I watched it. I just can't specify, specifically remember exactly. Fact check. Trust me, bro. Trust me, bro. It's someone. <laughs> but Matt, Matt's a sensation in this movie as well. I mean, he's always, he's always great. He's one of the, the best actors out there. He's always reliable. Old reliable. That's Even someone become. as unlikable as General Groves, you still can't help but like. But also there's respect he grows for Oppenheimer throughout the Manhattan Groves Project. Groves grows respect. But also Groves is very loyal, and he he's kind of just like this Boy Scout in terms of like he doesn't lie. And he, he's very honest and upfront, and he's transparent to an extent. 
you know, he's a straight shooter. When, when he's on the record. When you ask him the right, when you ask him things, he tells you. When leadership asks him. And even yeah. when Oppenheimer, like, admits, like, you only hired me because of this, or I, you're an engineer. He's like, oh, you got me. But also, he rejects, he can't keep him informed about what's going on after. Exactly. So, his duties to his country, and you respect that, you know, to an extent, as well as he helps Oppenheimer by sending Posh away. He sends Posh to... Pash. To well, it's pronounced pot, Pash. Is, Is that it that Pash? Was, it's Pash. That was Colonel Pash. Pash. It's Pash. Pash. It's Pash. He sends Pash away. Yeah, he sends Pash away to Europe to to make his assertions and assumptions about the German war effort. So he protects Oppenheimer throughout the Manhattan Project as they get to know each other to an extent and respects him. He, you know, kind of says that one thing to him when he's leaving the hearing. So they respect each other, and he did protect him. And also, he he, he said he would not. Um, except Oppenheimer based upon the current guidelines by the AEC for heading up a department like this, for heading up a project like this. But he also said, I'd reject all those other guys too. And he made sure, thank God for Oppenheimer's lawyer bringing it up, like, but that doesn't mean you don't doubt his loyalty to the United States. And he's like, for, I hope I did not sway anyone to think that I didn't have the utmost uh, respect and also confidence in the loyalty of Oppenheimer during the Manhattan Project. Like, a- absolutely, completely... Yeah, there's there was a there. Nolan did a great job of creating three kinds of kinships between Oppenheimer and um, other men. So with Groves, there was like a kinship and a camaraderie and a respect there. Um, but then also with Teller, there was uh, a camaraderie and respect there, and um, they were friends. You know, they they I think they had a lot of respect and trust in one another. But then it, obviously it soured when Teller betrayed him. And testified basically against him. Well, technically, he did betray him, but also you could argue from Teller's perspective, Oppenheimer betrayed him by not supporting his H-bomb program. Exactly, yeah. Um, but they become kind of uh, antagonists to one another in a way. And Teller, um, he sours on Oppenheimer. And then also, Strauss is the same. You know, there's a lot of respect. Strauss sought him out for the prestigious position. Um, and had so much admiration and respect for Oppenheimer, but then he also soured on Oppenheimer. But uh, there's a great amount of respect and uh, understanding amongst the two men early in the film, early in their relationship. Um, and so that's why I think the the deterioration of those three relationships, they work so well and they have a lot of power because they started on good terms, all three of those men, um, with Oppenheimer. Well, could you even argue that Groves and Oppenheimer were on good terms? Is more, yeah, is more friendly. Or, were, yeah. I wouldn't say friendly. There was orders. Yeah, but there was a level of respect for each other. Yeah, that's. Uh, that's I, know, think I, think, so. I don't think yeah. they were friends in the in the beginning of the Manhattan Project. Well, not the beginning, but I think during. Like they were. I'm beginning to see where you get your reputation. Yeah, yeah. but respect. Yeah, respect. Yeah, of yeah. course, yeah, yeah. of course, respect. <laughs> they weren't like pals. Maybe yeah. they maybe they were in real life. There's a lot of photos of them together. Well, yeah, well, they worked together for yeah, so no, long. But, yeah, but maybe they were pals. Maybe. I don't know. I wouldn't say pals. Were you there? I wouldn't describe, like, a general and a physicist as pals. Who else is a general going to be friends with? <laughs> <laughs> Spent three years together. <laughs> there were a couple of good jokes, too, in this movie. It's funny. Yeah, $2 billion. How'd you get there? It's easy. Just add up the bills. <laughs> <laughs> or he's like, 80 babies in the first year, 10 every month. Well, I can't control... Birth control is something not my repertoire. Is, yeah, <laughs> and then they cut Clearly. to Emily Blunt's character is pregnant. 
Yeah, there's some other great jokes. Also, Kenneth Branagh has become a Christopher Nolan regular as Niels Bohr, a physicist who proved Einstein wrong um, on one of his theories. Also won a Nobel Prize in 1922. That's why he's so respected early in the film. Very cool. And so he's a voice that everybody respects. And it was it was a great moment when he they finally extradited him back to America. Um, and then... He's. I'm sure he played a major role in policy making because he he tells Oppenheimer like I'm not going to be a part of this project. You don't need me, but I need to be a voice of reason for people to understand how the world's going to change once you finish this. I believe he's also a little more involved in the Manhattan Project than the film led on. Mm-hmm. I believe he was integral to like the overall idea of how to do it for Oppenheimer. Yeah, he's like, so you need to make a bomb and make it explode. Oh, thanks, dude. <laughs> thanks, Niels. Also, Werner Heisenberg. <laughs> who's a German theoretical physicist in 1932 Nobel Prize winner Heisenberg was a main contributor to the German atomic program during World War II in direct competition to the Manhattan Project. In 1941, he visited Niels Bohr in Copenhagen to discuss nuclear research, and then obviously Niels brings that up to Oppenheimer and the others when he comes for that early Christmas party, and they are ecstatic to hear that uh, Heisenberg took a wrong turn and is behind them, and now the Americans are ahead in the race to build the bomb. Crazy. There's this crazy... So when they're building the bomb and um, they're in the tent and they're placing that little me- metal cylinder into the top of the bomb, you know? Yeah. That is um, the ex- one of the explosive devices inside of it. That's not an explosive device, but that's one of the radioactive materials. I believe it was the plutonium. Um, that weighed 16 pounds and it was worth 400 million dollars holy crap in 1945 it was worth 400 million dollars and so that actually is called the tamper plug and they're it's like those two guys are holding it with like that metal holster right and they put it into the top of the bomb that is um it's it is plutonium and it's actually when it's condensed that much and of that size it actually it's actually warm it has a temperature of 80 degrees. And they didn't show it in the film, but in real life, when they tried to put it in, it didn't fit. That tamper plug, that little metal cylinder, it was stuck. It, didn't, it wouldn't go in. And it needed to slide down to the center of the bomb. But, and so everybody panicked, like, did we do the calculations wrong and the measurements incorrectly? But they did it perfectly. What, happens is, what happened was the, the metal, the material right around where that's supposed to go it was too cold and so they just let the tamper plug sit there and it warmed up the rest of the bomb around it so then it slowly was able to shape and slide into the bomb over like several hours because it was so precise and it had to be completely sealed tight that there couldn't be like even the slightest microscopic gap so it had to like literally change the shape of the interior of the bomb for it to fit into it Fascinating, but they did. I don't think they had time to really portray that in the movie. (laughs) I think he wanted to keep that suspense going. You know, when it comes to biopics, it's sometimes difficult to show the early life of the person you're talking about and showcasing a film. Some films spend too much time there, some films spend too little time there. But I think that the first act of this film, showing the background of Oppenheimer and his youth and his studies and how he got to the Manhattan Project, was phenomenal and it was paced really well it was just constant momentum the music was awesome and then the cross-cutting of the visions and basically 
what's plaguing the inside of Oppenheimer's mind is an anxiety of this universe he sees, this world inside of our world, this quantum theory that he's trying to find the right path to really explore and express. And eventually, Bohr's, Niels Bohr gives him the suggestion to go to Germany where he can study quantum theory, theoretical physics to really flex that muscle because he's not made for the lab. He's not made for mathematics. His mathematics is really great, but nothing compared to like the great mathematicians of his time. His real strength. Even one is, of his students, he says, has better math than you him. Have better, your calculations are better than mine. Your math's better than mine. So it's great advice to have him go do something else, get out of there, and then bring the theoretical physics, quantum physics, to America. I, I thought it was a sensational first act to introduce the background of Oppenheimer. So well done, as well as splicing in and, and, and cross-cutting with the visuals and aesthetic of the bomb, of the molecular practical shots of the molecular energy, the vibrations, the the shots of atoms and nuclei colliding and expanding. Incredible. I loved it. And then also throwing in the hearings as well throughout the entire course of that, um, where he's basically explaining his life story um, and justifying his life, which is said a couple of times um, while we're watching it unfold. It was just really well done. And, you know, movies like Memento and Prestige and Batman Begins kind of led to an entire film being portrayed in this way, but in much more complexity. Like, he cuts between timelines much more than he does in those other movies. Um, and I think it was just, like, all all these learning experiences and writing in that style and that format and structuring his stories that way have given him the ability to kind of do it effortlessly uh, on a grander scale with a movie like this. Man. I love I love it. Uh, yeah, anything else? A lot of people keep asking us to rank... Um, this movie, I, it's hard to I, it's hard to rank it so quickly. I need to watch it again, and I need to think about it for a few weeks, maybe even months, before I can really rank this in Nolan's filmography. Yeah, I mean, immediately in putting it top three, it, it might be his best. You know, like we don't love to succumb to recency bias; we seldom do. But this, is, I think, is an exception to that rule that we like to stick by. Yeah, and I think it could be his best movie. I do think it can be could be his best. I movie. think it's his best screenplay for sure. It's I would say it's his best script. It's sensational. He's gonna win a so well screenplay. Written. I also think that, and I mean, I mean, it's crazy to think that Christopher Nolan has only been nominated for best director for Dunkirk once, just once in his life. After making the guy eight who movies. yeah, the guy who made Dark Knight, the guy who made The Prestige, the guy who made Inception, the guy who made Interstellar. It wasn't until Dunkirk that the Academy nominated him for best director. He's actually won the DGA award. He won for Inception, but. Um, it's just crazy how little re respect he's been given by the Academy. But I think Oppenheimer might be his year. It might be his movie and it might be his year. I predict that this film will win Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Director, Best Lead Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Visual Effects, Editing. I don't think Score will win. Um, it will win Sound. And it will win... It'll get nominated for costume design. It'll get nominated for production design, but it won't win. So I predict it's going to win. I predict it will win seven Oscars. That'd be crazy. And I think they'd all be deserved. And I agree. I think this might be the best movie I've seen since Parasite. That's right, what, right off the bat. I was like, that's the best thing I've seen in a theater since Parasite. It's one of the best films of the century for sure. And I, I can't wait to see it again. And do you think that maybe Nolan's operating on a very subtle metaphor of himself in the film industry of being a director with this film in terms of, you know, Oppenheimer building the bomb and then dealing with the fallout of that, of that 
with the world, but then like Nolan really turning superhero movies into what they are with the Dark Knight trilogy <laughs> and where we're no, at with the studio system now. I don't think so at all. I think that um, this is a fun metaphor. Yeah, though. It's, it's fun to think about it. I haven't heard that yet. Are people saying that online? No, I just kind of think I was just like okay, trying yeah, to yeah. look at it like that. No, I think the, I think you're reading too much into it. I think people like Nolan. I'm not, I don't really believe it. I think okay. it's just fun to talk about. No, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't say so. Yeah, I think it's funny. I don't think too many directors are, are operating on that kind of like, this is move, This is going to be about me. Yeah. But I think there's definitely a correlation between Christopher Nolan as a director and you could say Oppenheimer maybe as a physicist in, in that extent in terms of the cultural impact of their work. Well, what makes Nolan different from every other director except for Stanley Kubrick is his constant fascination with science and mathematics and most notably physics in his films and really putting that into his films like no other director's really done that before on such a consistent basis there's it's just what i think is that he these are things that interest him as a person and so he's gra he gravitates to films um whether based on historical fiction like this or something he's come up with on his own where he can talk about those ideas as a storyteller and kip thorne who was the consultant on interstellar and was integral to a lot of the science and physics involved with that film, as well as the prediction of what a black hole would look like, which they eventually got confirmation of several years later when we got the first image of one, was a consultant on this film as well. Very cool. Very cool. They're, they're, they're tight. They're homies. I wonder, if Kip, I wonder if Kip Thorne lives in that apartment complex too, Anthony. They, they, they're all roommates. <laughs> <laughs> they're all roommates. All right. I think that wraps our- What's your rating out of 10? Fucking 10, dude. 1,000 out of 10. 1,000. 1,000 out of 10. 10,000 out of 10. 20, 20 kilotons out of 10. 10 That's a, my rating. A megaton out of 10. Nice. That wraps our episode on Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Thank you so much for tuning in to this incredible- episode of Raiders of Lost Podcast. Again, become a yeah, patron. Yeah, it was an incredible episode. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed our outfits. I'm sweating because it's 95 degrees out today, but the AC's on, but still I'm wearing a, a three-piece suit, but I think it looks pretty sharp. It's worth it for the episode. <laughs> Thank you so much. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Take care, everyone. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian Singleton, Tyler McFly, Andrew Hagen. Our chosen one patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a mirror image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.